Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, December the 8th, 843-661-0937. What, what is the chuckle? Good morning, Reb. Good morning. Good morning, Freehole. Thank you, Freehole, for he's, that um for that working. introduction. He's been working on it's his... It's obvious uh, he's been introduced. I mean, the, the, I mean, I'm beginning to suspect that he has no respect for me. <laughs> I mean, I really am. He just throws these things out there without fair warning, without any heads up. That's, that's the best way. Yeah. And you know you like it that well, way. The, the northern aggressors have that mindset. I mean, they do. <laughs> they, they Since they won the war, they believe they're able to just kind of put us in our place at any given at any given moment. Um, that's all in fun. And so, um, <laughs> but we're paying a dude to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're paying a voice guy, so sure, to speak, that's uh, a, that's a big to record business. those things for us. Well, you know it because you just say you've got your Rolls Royce and <laughs> Mansion of the Hamptons. <laughs> no, about B- all being that. the voice guy. Nobody's called me yet to do the voice work. <laughs> You know what I mean? Um, I hear you. I heard it was if you were distinct and unique and had a sound of your own, you would probably um, get some opportunities. Well, I think I'm distinct and unique and have a sound of my own, but I've not gotten any of those opportunities yet. Um, every, yet. Time, every time I turn on this radio station, I hear your voice. But those so are endorsements. Those are not okay. Um, what where somebody sends me a script and says, "Would yeah. you read this like a as professionally as you could?" Right. But I mean, the majority is. <laughs> Hey, this is the voice of the dude that hosts the radio show in the morning that for some stupid reason has garnered some audience. So let's, um, let, I don't know, Rev, what is this called? I mean, it, it's not an endorsement. Uh, some of these are endorsements. Some are not endorsements. Yeah. It's more of a, um, if you agree to advertise on this show, we don't have an X, Y, and Z. We've got an X, Y, and a Z, and an A, and a B, and a C, and a D. And a, mm. we'll, we'll do whatever it takes to help you get your deal done because you're helping us get our deal done. And for I come from, you know what happens? One hand wash the other hand, they both get clean. <laughs> That's, That's just the, the way I've always um, lived my life. 843-661-0937. Real quick on the football front. You ready? Mm. So I'm about to go to bed last night at 930-ish. My daughter's home for uh, – one of those breaks. I mean, I, don't, they go to, I think they go to college a month, and then they take a month <laughs> off for a break, and then they go to college for a month, yep. and then they take another the winter month. winter break is so, what they call uh, it now. This is the winter break. Mm-hmm. Call it Christmas, and you're talking about Jesus, and we certainly can't right. combine uh, the long-haired guy with higher education So, because um, we live in this um, sensitive era, and, um, you know, maybe you have religious freedoms. But for, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Bert. Bert's got a 1,000 guys. I only got one. I only got one. Um so so she's home, mm-hmm. and we're talking last night. I mean, I enjoy her being home. She'll be here until what? Shortly after the first of the yeah, year. Probably about the second. Week and um, again, yeah, second of uh, second of second week of January. Wow, hey, that's how I remember it. It's too long. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, she's home, <laughs> and <laughs> so we're sharing some Ouch. conversations. And all of a sudden, Twitter blows up. Uh, a couple of I'm on these group these Gamecock group text is what I call them, and I start getting uh you know irate uh, fan messages. From people who are so bothered, there was a report late yesterday evening that the university's plane—they're tracking the airplane. Well, they always do this. I mean, wow. coaching searches are always part of this. So they're tracking the university plane, and it landed somewhere in Arkansas. Well, there's a guy in Arkansas who is the Razorbacks' offensive coordinator that the Gamecocks have really—they um, they find him attractive and appealing. Kendall Browse. Um, he's one of the up and comers in college football ranks. Um, I mean, he and Garrett Riley would be two of the most noted offensive coordinators in college football. I don't know if they're better than everybody else. Who knows? I mean, it's kind of a crapshoot anyway. So anyway, university plane is tracked. It's in Arkansas. And there's a belief that, that Beamer's there to meet with, um, Kendall Browse. And then as the evening progressed, the news became, no, it's not Kendall Browse, but rather 
some dude that's a, that's a tight end coach at um at Arkansas. I think it's Lowens is his last name. Um, but anyway, uh, he's kind of an unknown. He's tight ends coach. He was an offensive coordinator in the NFL for the New York Jets, for the Miami Dolphins, and the New York Giants, if I'm not mistaken. Now, but he's got some pedigree there when it comes to uh, being an OC. He's never been an offensive coordinator in college football, and the majority of his coaching experience has been in the National Football League, which is kind of what Satterfield was. And um, and a lot of fans are irate. Are we, is this Satterfield 2.0? I mean, why would you – you didn't learn your lesson, Beamer? You know what I mean? You, you, you brought Satterfield from the NFL to be your offensive coordinator. That didn't work. I mean, don't you realize, Shane, that the offensive game in college football is different than the offensive game in, um, in the NFL? And it is. Of course it is. Uh, the biggest thing is the players aren't as good in college as they are in the National Football League. So Rev walks in this morning and said, what do you make of all this, you know, oh, hot I could, talk? I, I couldn't believe, I mean, the the way people were saying they were upset over this as a potential choice. I'd never heard of the guy, so I don't know one way or another. But, I mean, people, you know, they, they're going to they're gonna be done with Shane, done with the Gamecocks. I can't support this anymore. Every I, offensive coordinator's job he's had in the NFL he was fired from. Yeah, I mean, that blew my mind. Well, let me tell you, there are two kind of coaches. You ready? There are coaches that have been fired and coaches that are going to get fired. I mean, that's the only two kind of coaches there are. And then, I mean, there's a Nick Saban and a Bill Belichick. I mean, I would imagine, and Dabo. I mean, Dabo's not going to get fired. Dabo's earned the right to leave when he chooses to. I'll make a prediction. Dabo probably stays longer than he should. I mean, most coaches like that do. Frank Beamer, Bobby Bowden. I mean, they build programs. They're highly successful. Um, they become the face of the program, and they normally stay here two or three years longer than they probably should have. Bobby Bowden and Frank Beamer come to mind. I mean, they built programs pretty much out of nothing, and they became, you know, national championship competing programs. Um, long Probably story short. Hard to give up those big old paychecks. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, and, you know, the um, the adoration of the fan base. Long story short, I don't have a clue. I mean, I don't have any idea oh, whether see, this guy. You were going to have the insight well, I, for me this I, morning. I, the, I mean, nobody, you, Twitter has as much as I do. <laughs> I mean, the Facebook, the message boards have as much as I do. Um, will Beamer hire this guy? I don't know. Will he be a good OC if he does hire him? I don't know. We shall see. Um, but it's interesting to me how everybody so quickly could pull up career stats and what this player said about him or that player um, said about him. All I know is Shane Beamer beat Tennessee and Clemson. And I'm not saying that gave him the right to not be questioned, but that gave him the right to go hire an OC that he sees fit. And um, we shall see how that works itself out. I mean, I expected him to hire someone with college football offensive coordinating experience, but but he may have met with this guy. And this guy said a lot of things um, you know what I mean? That made a lot of sense for what Beamer's looking for, that there's so much to this we don't know, we'll never know, and don't need um, to know. But long story short, um, is he going to hire this guy? Don't know. If he does hire this guy, is he going to be a good OC? I don't know. We, we shall we shall see how that works itself. I did get a bit of good news yesterday. The, um, the first team All-American tied in from Notre Dame announced that he is leaving and declared eligible for the draft, so he's not going to play in the um in the in the Gator Bowl against South Carolina. So yeah, I mean Notre Dame with a Notre Dame without an All American tied in is a good is a better opponent for South Carolina than Notre Dame with an All American um, tied in. And I'll tell you, if you're a first round draft choice or projected, I mean Cam Smith for South Carolina is not going to play. And I get it. I mean if you're a first round draft choice, you've concluded your regular season. The bowl games are somewhat exhibition games anyway. Go ahead, hire your agent. Hire trainer, hire your team, um, and get in shape. Get in the best shape you can and get ready to be an NFL football player. I get that.
But if you're a third or fourth or fifth round draft choice, or you're just somebody who doesn't want to play in the game because it's an exhibition game, I, I just don't get that. I mean, I certainly understand the first round draft choice. Clemson, Carolina, Notre Dame, Tennessee. I mean, if you're that guy, yeah. I mean, go and put your team together and, and begin looking forward to making generational money because first-round draft choices in the NFL don't just make money for themselves. If they choose to, they make money for their families. I mean, it's generational wealth. You get third- and fourth-rounders, uh, you know, you, you may you may get enough to to get ahead, but you don't get enough to uh, kind of set yourself on a – on a um ah, what a, a path of financial um security eight four three six six one oh nine three seven our number I want to go there's a couple of words I want to re enrollment and capture rate uh real clear politics did an expose on Pennsylvania and the re enrollment and the capture rate is somebody on the phone no. okay nobody's there no. um I thought somebody called and held on for a second okay I changed subjects and maybe they want to talk about I'm something else. Guys, if I change gears or shift gears in the middle of which, while you're unwaiting. happens a lot. I mean, don't don't be bothered at all. I mean, go back to talking. I think you know, some of the callers that are more, you know, accustomed to us, I mean, they, they'll, I mean, they call in, you know, with their minds made up of what they want. That's fine. I mean, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I mean, you know, you're on hold for a few moments and my mind is gone. I mean, it's the busy head, busy head syndrome and I've gone off in one direction and then all of a sudden you call about that. I golf at another. I mean, no, stay there. Stay there, and we'll go back to whatever it is um, you want to go back to. But I'm not going to read this entire expose in, this, in the state of Pennsylvania, but Real Clear Politics did kind of a data dive. We're not talking about statistical anomalies. I mean, forget that for a second. Remember um, William Doyle and his um, presentations of what he believes happened in some of the um, senior homes, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio. Um, this is more about the um, the systematic approach to ballot harvesting. And it goes to two words, re-enrollment and capture rate. And there, I mean, this, this guy was a former Democrat chief of staff, and he joined with a former Republican chief of staff, and they did kind of a, um, a data dive in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has 67 counties. In 66 of the 67 counties, the Democrats had at least a two-to-one advantage in what we call re-enrollment and capture rate. Re-enrollment means that um, you, you after COVID, post-COVID, there were some emergency declarations made in a lot of these varying states. Pennsylvania left it on on the books, but but to be a um, to request an absentee ballot, you've got to re-enroll, and the Democrats have built a machine that knocks on Miss Smith's door and said, Miss Smith, you know that ballot you got last time you didn't request? You got to re-enroll to get that ballot again this time. I've got, I happen to have a form here with me that, that, you know, I just happen to have a spare in my of back course. pocket that will help Miss Smith re-enroll. The re-enrollment and capture rate, and I'm talking about capture rate of that ballot. Miss Smith hadn't voted. Because of COVID, we mail her a ballot. Somebody harvests that ballot. So she's now in the system, but Miss Smith is not likely to re-enroll. She didn't want the ballot to begin with. But but all of a sudden, once again, knock on the door, Miss Smith. Remember last time you didn't mail, you didn't ask for a ballot. Yeah, and you got one anyway. Yeah, and you mailed it in and voted. Yeah, did that feel good? Well, I don't know. I mean, that didn't feel any different than it is. I mean, the lady filled it out for me. I didn't do it. <laughs> You know, you know, I didn't really vote. She voted for me. She asked me a couple of questions. She she was such a kind lady. She helped me do this. 
Well, in 66 of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania, the the Democrat re-enrollment rate and the Democrat capture rate is at least two to one over the Republicans. There's one county where it's not two to one. The Republicans don't lead in a single county. But in one of the 67 counties, they're not getting outpaced by double. And I mean, it, it, some of the analytics say it's somewhere around 230,000 votes. I mean, we're, we're, we're estimating here. I mean, there, there is no, I mean, there, there's no ironclad way to know exactly what the number is. But, but when you take this little, uh, you know, this little bit of this nugget of information, you juxtapose it with this nugget of information, you combine it and you create these Venn diagrams and overlaps and, and whatnot, it looks like it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 230,000-ish votes that their Democrats are getting over the Republicans simply by re-enrolling in this absentee early voting plan and the capture rate uh, of making sure the ballots get harvested, turned back in. And um, and we're talking about, uh, remember, the new age of American politics. We've discussed that for a week or two or three. And um, Pennsylvania elected a dead man and someone who is, um, I mean, obviously struggling with the after effects of a stroke but but they didn't elect themselves, guys. A dead man can't elect himself. Uh, a guy with a stroke has a lot of hardships in trying to elect uh, themselves. But but when you got you know when you've got a um a, when you've got one political party that is so heavily invested in this capture rate and re-enrollment uh, over the other, you can. I mean, a dead man can win. And a and a guy who's I mean I don't want to call him a vegetable because he's not that. But a guy who's obviously having big struggles communicating uh, if he's got a message he can't communicate it and um so, so when you go back and then we'll take our our first break of the morning and, and i tried to do this yesterday afternoon i'm still trying i mean I, i'm thinking about walker and warnock um and i'm thinking about kemp and i'm thinking about independent voters and how many stayed home and how many republicans decided not to vote for walker um it's still hard to come up with that answer but but, but the unthinkable happened the country believes by a margin of 70-30 that we're on the wrong track. About 55 to 60% of Americans believe that the president's doing a bad job. And the Democrats picked up a Senate seat. I mean, that's just, that, that's wildly, wildly unlikely. I mean, that never happens. Right. I mean, things like that. I mean, that, you're talking about crime and inflation. Forget crime, inflation, and the price of gas. I mean, obviously, those don't help much. But in the throes of... Um, the highest inflation since we've measured inflation. Some of the major metropolitan areas experiencing the highest crime rate that they ever have. A right track, wrong track number as underwater as any incumbent president in American history. Combine that with the approval rating somewhere between 40 and 45%. Some measures having less than 40%. And the Democrats picked up a seat in the Senate. They picked up two governorships. I mean, that, that's just hard to fathom. And there is no historical precedent here. I mean, you really and truly, I'd love to say, well, I read about the election of such and such, or I read about, you know, uh, post-Civil War when this happened in 1928. There is no example remotely close to what's happened in America today. Um, there are fewer, or there will be fewer Republican governors in 2022. There will be fewer Republican senators in 2022. We know the House races are a little bit different, but it's still paled in what we thought was going um, to happen. So, so when you think about, well, how? How could that have happened? How could that many people believe we're on the wrong track? 
How can that higher percentage believe the president's doing a bad job? How can crime be out of the charts? And people are talking about crime, inflation, price of gas, price of food. How can all of those be practical realities and the party in charge doesn't get their behind handed to them? How, I mean, how, how mm-hmm. can that happen? Re-enrollment, capture rate. Trust me, guys, <laughs> if, the, if the Republicans don't build an infrastructure that, that focuses on re-enrollment of early and absentee voting and the capture rate, they're not being outdone by 2%. They're being outpaced 2 to 1 in 66 of the 67 Pennsylvania counties. And Pennsylvania is, I mean, it's a state you got to be competitive in. Do if Republicans you're to, even play that game, the re-enrollment and capture rate and harvesting game at all? They dabble at it. Vanderbilt dabbles in football. Right. <laughs> Yeah, the Republicans in early and absentee voting is like Vanderbilt dabbling in football. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a minute. That may be the best analogy of the week. The Republicans in early voting are like Vanderbilt in football. They dabble in it. They're not very serious about it. They do it because sort of they have to do it to remain in good standing with the Southeastern Conference. So we early and absentee vote to remain in good standing. With the political, but but imagine this, guys. What's your winning record when you well, dabble? I mean, but, but think about it. I mean, we know how competitive Pennsylvania is. We understand that every advantage is a big advantage, and we're getting outpaced two to one in sixty-six of the sixty-seven counties. Delaware County is the epicenter of ballot harvesting in America. I'm convinced of this. Now, once again, some of it's legal. I think some of it's illegal. But but the Democrats have invested in an infrastructure and manpower that allows them to significantly outperform the Republicans. And if the Republicans don't wake up and understand this is the new reality, they'll never win Pennsylvania again. They'll never win Arizona again. They'll never win Nevada again. It doesn't matter how good the candidate is, how quality the message is, what the inflation numbers are, what the presidential approval rating is. Miss Smith, I'm here again. I want to get that ballot again. We need dem- we need Republicans knocking on the door the day before the Democrat. Miss Smith, I want to get that ballot before those Democrats get that ballot because we're getting outnumbered two to one in the absentee early voting reality. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Remember a couple months ago I told you about Biden's executive order to all the federal organizations to get involved and turn out the vote and all this stuff, right? The, uh, in Georgia, just a small example, you know, they, they, they didn't want early voting to start on Saturday. They wanted to start on Monday because it was right after Thanksgiving. And the Democrats went to court and sued and said, okay, you can start on Saturday. Well, guess what? The Democrats started on Saturday. They started uh, early voting, and what did they say? They had a 300,000 turnout on Saturday. Close to 400,000, about 380,000. Well, all of that happened in the Democrat counties because the Republican counties didn't open up their early voting until Monday because they didn't want to open up because it was right after you know, they're going by the rule of the law. Well, that's what caused Herschel Walker, I think, the election. There's a, a little group called Open Secrets 
can go to and find out. That's how they found out about Fauci's salary. You can find out, like, say, my my Hartsville High football coach makes over $100,000 a year. You can look at all kinds of stuff. Anybody that's federal or open records, you can find out what they make and how much the company spends and donors and everything else. There was $16.7 billion spent in this past election. That's the most money that's ever been spent in the history of the world on a midterm election, state and federal. Now, if somebody wants to tell me that that executive order from Joe Biden did not affect that, I got some land I want to say, and it's right in my backyard. It's called my septic tank. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Think of what we're talking about here, guys. A federal election, a national election, electoral college presidential election is going to be won in about four states. I mean, let, let's be let's be generous and say it's two hundred fifty. Let's say three hundred thousand votes. I mean, it's not going to be that many. It's probably going to be less than a hundred thousand. But let's say that we give ourselves some cover, and it's going to be three hundred thousand votes in four states that decide who the president is going to be. Why wouldn't you build an infrastructure to make sure you've got an advantage in those highly competitive states? to find another 100,000 votes in this state and another 150,000 votes in that state. And and here's where it gets a little bit, I mean, this is what I think happens. I can't prove this, but I think some of the precinct hustlers are getting paid somewhere between $20 and $50 a ballot. And that's pretty good money. I mean, if you go out and get 100 ballots, Miss Smith, that's $100. Mr. Jones, that's $100. And the next thing you know, but, but Rev, in the grand scheme of things, if George Soros has to fund to the tune of $10 million to get out the vote um, entity or enterprise, that's that's peanuts. Now, that means nothing. Joe just talked about the billions and billions and billions we spend on elections. So if I've got to pay freehold to go around a neighborhood or a housing complex in Delaware County, I mean, let's say I end up paying him 50 grand. Let's say the total bill that Soros picks up is, is $10, $15, 20000000 million. That's nothing to be in charge of government. And Republicans have to understand that's what we're competing with. I'm convinced they're getting paid. I mean, nobody knocks on a door on Saturday morning rounding up 100 ballots because they love America. I mean, I just don't buy that. I mean, there are very few people that patriotic. They're getting paid to do this. They're getting paid well to do this. And in the grand scheme of things, 5 or $10 million is chump change to winning a presidential election. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bre- uh, Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. You did all right, kid. They're getting paid, you know, and everything. None of this makes sense. I'd like to go back to the same thing. I don't believe that that old of more people voted for this other bozo over Walker. You can say that Dustin Walker wasn't a good candidate. I just don't believe that in Georgia. I don't believe that you can. We can say all of the stuff you want to say, but I think people are being paid to get votes. And I think people are getting paid to. What did they pay everybody on that ballot, too? What if the guy says, hey, you fill out this ballot, it goes $30? I mean, I mean this thing, the, the way you can cheat is endless. And, then, and, and the Republicans do this, so my question is, why weren't they doing it? And, of course, what's going to happen when you start having 300,000 more votes at this particular precinct or district or whatever that actually live there? Or actually, or you, you see where I'm going? Sure, I do. The well, the elections will be nothing. And then you keep looking at these piece of crap Republicans. I mean, every single time you turn around, 
I mean, I hate them worse than the Democrats because they're constantly, constantly crapping on us. I mean, they got this thing going on um, where, um, and you know, you know, all you got to do is watch Tucker, you know, looks like, or, or watch your Facebook. I'm not spouting out vast knowledge. The Republicans are working with the Democrats for amnesty for illegal aliens that are already even coming in from Mexico. It's not Mexicans. It's everybody south of Mexico. And, and the Republicans are working with them. And, what, and do we hold them accountable? Hell no. Do they care if we ran? Hell no. They also, you know, they got the thing where Mitch um, McConnell's been over there at the White House working with Biden on the new omnibus spending bill. Do they care? Hell no. Where's Lindsey Graham? Where are our guys? I mean, every one of these damn Republicans, they either are in on it or they just can't, or there's something screwed up with them all the way. And if you see that, you know, I was judging this thing the other night during the Herschel thing, there's some bill that, that some of the Republicans are working with just that they claim it as a bag on Raiden Big Tech. But if you look at the bill really close, it may cause these uh, network news stations to even have more power and probably get rid of all conservative talk radio and conservative talk. It, may, it would be a blow to us. And, and Republicans are working up with them. You know what I'm talking about? I, I sent you that text the other day, JCPA is a bill that they're talking about. And uh, Mike Lee is trying to tell all the Republicans, Man, this is bad for us. Why are you doing it? You, are you familiar with that bill, Kim? Yeah, that's the bill. What they're trying to do, Breeze, is when when Twitter or Facebook, when somebody downloads a, let's say the morning news or the Sumter, what's the Sumter news? Item. Yeah, the Sumter item. If they have a paper and it's downloaded, one of their articles is downloaded on Twitter or Facebook, they get paid for being downloaded. That article, they get, that there's some amount of money. What it's, it's trying to do is keep the newspaper from closing down. I mean, they're trying right. to create some uh, ancillary cash flow so the newspapers don't drop and blow away. Yeah, but I think it's, I think they're, uh, you know, and I kind of, I hate to say trust because I can't think of any of them I really trust, but that Lee guy, you know, he, he is off. Uh, he's one of us. Adamant, I mean, he's one of us. Yeah, he's adamantly against it. And, and here's another thing I look at. When I look at who's for something, that's all I need to know. Anything that Mitch McConnell is for and, and the rest of these guys like him, you know it's bad. And any time that we are on board with the Democrats, you know it's bad. So they got to be doing this crap to destroy us on purpose, man. I've been so sick of that, sick of it. You know, and I just, you know, and, and I listen to, you know, every now and then if I get a break, I listen to you guy, Jeff, and he seems smart enough and you don't really, he doesn't get so angry. But, you know, I just sit there and scratch. I mean, he, is he one of the 70% that think this country's going in the right, the wrong direction? Or is he one of the 30% that's really tickled to death at the way uh, these people are destroying our country? Yeah, he argues with you, and it's fun to listen to him. But, I mean, this guy sounds relatively smart. So is he down with everything that's happening? Is, is he pointing to all the good things that, that has been going on that the Democrats and Republicans are doing to us. I just can't imagine anybody anywhere near their right mind thinking that everything that's going on is good. You know, I, I just can't imagine it. And I don't know how anybody, and I think a lot of the people that are getting to vote, I hate to say this, are probably simpletons that they're getting these ballots to. People you can give $10 to. You know, you could go to any homeless shelter and give everybody their five dollars. You got a thousand votes. Sure, they'd sell their vote for that. Absolutely. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that, 
you know, I mean, history has examples of people buying and selling votes. I mean, the people have gotten in trouble, but the majority don't get caught. I mean, the Highway Patrol catches some speeders, but they don't catch anywhere near. As, I mean, they catch a lot fewer than they don't catch. Um, Breeze was talking about the JCPA. That's the what Journalism um, Competition and Preservation Act. One of the um, things that stood out in that bill to me, and, and Breeze is exactly right. I mean, watch who supports or not. I mean, if Mike Lee's against it, odds are I'm going to be against it. If Mitch McConnell's for it, odds are I'm going to be against it. I mean, that's just, you know, and that's a pretty good, because these things get real confusing, the language. Um, you can go to the summary of the bill. The one takeaway I had was instead of allowing the marketplace to work in some of these, uh, in some of the news agencies, it's going to basically subsidize. It's going to force Twitter and Facebook to subsidize the existence of newspapers that are failing. The newspaper can't make it in the marketplace. So Twitter and Facebook, because they're social media sites where you download stories, um, that, that's kind of the way. I had an interesting conversation last week with, with a friend of mine, and he actually listens to the show. And um, he had kind of a theory of what he thought Elon Musk would do with Twitter, and it was an interesting theory. We, we talked about the $8 check mark and how much revenue that generates a month. Mm-hmm. And will that replace you know, the, um, the revenue he's losing? Uh, $5 billion in ad revenues turned into about $3 billion. It's not quite... I'm cut in half. It's just starting to reestablish itself, and you're seeing it. Um, they want to be on Twitter and need to be on Twitter because 250 million Apple's back on yeah, board. 250 million active users. But but my friend had a good. I mean, he had a good point. He said, "What if Musk intends? In other words, if if there's an if if Rev goes on and wants to share some information and wants people to be exposed to this news story, and it's a New York Times story, and I click on and I'm not a subscriber." then I can't. I run into the paywall. I can't read the story about the Biden family. Well, that's a bad example because that's the New York Times and crime family. I mean, they would never do that. Um, the Trump crime family. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> oh, New York Times, there's an article that a liberal poster on Facebook or Twitter wants to put on about the New York Times and what they're saying about the Trump family. And I click on, Rev's a subscriber, so he puts it out there. I click on, can't read it. My friend believes that Elon's going to figure out a way to charge me 20 cents or 30 cent or 50 cent to access that story. I don't have to subscribe, you know, for $12.99 a month or $19.99 a month. Uh, I can be a one-time user. There's going to be, uh, Twitter's going to make it possible for, you know, the consumer to not subscribe, but read that single oh, article like a paper for a view. nominal fee. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like a la carte. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't want the whole thing, man. Huh. I just want this. And uh, I don't know. I mean, that's just a buddy of mine who has that theory, and it kind of makes sense to me. Now, once again, I think I understand what Elon's doing with the, with the blue check mark, you know, the $8 subscription fee. I get that. I mean, that's recurring revenue, and he's trying to basically say, you know, Apple may come, Apple may not, GM, Ford, some of these major national brands with advertising budgets, I mean, they'll be in and out. I mean, they, they'll, they'll make a lot of decisions based on the state of the economy, um, you know, what, what, the, um, what their projections are. But, but that $8 is going to be a recurring. I mean, it obviously won't be exactly the same. But it won't be a, a static number, and there'll be some fluctuation there. But but I think it's interesting, the, the, the notion of I'm not a subscriber to the New York Times, and I ain't paying twelve ninety nine a month, but I will pay, you know, $0.30 cent or $0.50 cent to watch or read that, that one single article, and maybe you get something set up like a PayPal account. And you just, you know, it dings your account for 50 cent or whatever. I just think that's a pretty interesting idea. Mm-hmm. And I got to believe if we've thought of it, one of the smartest guys on the planet has as well. Let's go to the phone. Matt in Florence. Morning, Matt. Hey, guys. I, I agree with you, but I think it's a lot more nefarious than uh, what 
what you're talking about, Ken. Like, imagine if the door knock didn't happen. Um, that's where my mind is at with these ballot things. I don't think they've got the time and the patience to be running around knocking on doors, convincing Miss Smith to vote. They've got Miss Smith's ballot because they know she's not going to go vote uh, because she's incapacitated or she's never voted before or because she's been missing for 20 years. Um, I don't think they're actually going to the people in, in doing that. It's it's a lot more nefarious than that. I think there's a uh, somewhere there's an English lit student sitting in a basement and thousands of ballots show up in a stack for him and he signs the name that he's supposed to sign, puts them back in the envelope, and they get sent off. And he'll probably do it for 40 bucks or, you know, a, a semester of free college. Who knows? You know, they're not they're not in the business of paying people a lot of money for this stuff. But I don't believe that convincing a Miss Smith is what's happening. I don't think the ballot ever gets to Miss Smith before it gets signed, sealed and delivered. I can't disagree with that. I mean, you're speculating as I am. I did go last night online and looked at in Pennsylvania and Atlanta, Atlanta in particular, because we just had election in Georgia, the largest apartment complexes in Atlanta. I mean, that's what I Googled. The largest apartment complexes in Atlanta and I mean, there are apartment complexes that have thousands, thousands of residents, you know, within uh, a quarter mile of one another in the same building. I mean, it's a major metropolitan area. It's what, the 10th or 12th biggest city in America? Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it, radio market, Ref? 10th biggest, not the top 10 radio yeah. market in America. But it's one of the bigger cities in all of the country, and it's growing like wildfire. So, um, so I do believe, to Matt's point, that there's a mailroom somewhere where 1,000 ballots or 10,000 ballots show up. And they're sitting in a mailroom somewhere. Somebody knows when those ballots are going to be dropped off. They grab, you know, I mean, we, we've, we've heard. I mean, they, there's some transcripts out there that show um, people conversing with one another. My bag will only hold 2,500 ballots. You know, we'll get another bag I mean, because we got 5,000 to hand out or fill out. Yeah, but I do believe Matt's right. I think there's an attempt by some to knock on the door and see what Miss Smith's doing. I think there are others who say, to hell with that. That takes too long. Um, meet me at wherever, and let's just fill them out ourselves. 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. I may spend a good bit of the weekend going over some of the uh, scenario we padded, uh, I don't know, painted yesterday or tried to lay out yesterday. Trump is a third-party candidate. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the the lack of support by the Republicans to Trump, and I went back and looked at some of the um, some of the early data. I mean, you can't tell yet. There's a lot of this that we'll find out as days go by. But um, but in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, you know what went wrong. I mean, that's going to be the postmortem. I mean, when it comes, I mean, we didn't win forty seats; we won eight. Um, we didn't win uh, fifty-four seats in the Senate; we're we're forty-nine. And I'm thinking about we being the Republicans. So what went wrong? There'll be a postmortem, and I think the highlight of the postmortem has to be Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. I mean, we can talk ballot harvesting as long as we'd like, but it seems to me the, the Republicans are okay believing in the 1980 model of politicking. Uh, they're Vanderbilt when it comes to, uh, you know, early voting and absentee voting and investing in an infrastructure that allows them to be competitive. They've dabbled in that, but but the Democrats are fully invested and fully motivated. And, of course, the, those are the states and the races where polls before the election showed that Republicans were in the lead or at least uh, – in the poll, they were better than they ended up being. Because you're polling likely voters, and the harvesting turns unlikelies into likelies, and it's hard to really pick that up in the polling. But I want to go back to the, a set of data, um, and this is speculative, 100% speculative. But let's say that Larry Hogan, 
I mean, let's say the establishment, the Lincoln Project, I mean, they got their party back. They waited us out. The America Firsters finally said, screw it. I'm tired of fighting with you. I mean, I'm just, you know, the, the one-third of the party that just won't come to the dance despite not, you know, being in charge of, or because they're not in charge of the dance, um, we're not playing ball. We're just not going to do it. We'll, 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 we'll allow Democrats to win. Because if you think about it, if you're a Lincoln Project Republican, it doesn't upset you terribly that the Democrats are in charge. Because they're not going to move the deck chairs around. I mean, they're going to leave everything kind of sort of in the same place. I mean, I know you sell a bill of goods to a constituency, but you really don't believe in that. You don't believe in limited government. You don't believe in in lower taxes. You don't believe in liberties and freedoms. I mean, you're a big fan of government because that's what you've made your living on. You've made your living on the back of um, making sure government works a certain way. So if you're a Lincoln Project or Never Trump Republican, I mean, you're, you're highly motivated to not give in to become an America firster. So let's say we go through 16, 18, 20, 22, we get to 24, and about middle of next year, Trump says, I'm going to run as an independent. I mean, I've got enough Republican voters to win the primary, but I don't have enough to win the general. Uh, the data clearly shows that. I mean, it, I'm not saying Trump can't win. I mean, that we could have a, um, a tsunami of a recession in 2023, and I don't know. I mean, maybe we get to a point the ballot harvesting and, and these other things aren't as forceful as the will of the people. Um, but, but let's play this out for argument's sake. Let's say that Logan, excuse me, Hogan is at, um, is at about 25%. I mean, he's the nominee of the Republican Party. He gets 25% of the vote. Trump gets 30, 31, 32% of the vote. Uh, Biden gets 42, 3, 4, 5% of the vote. Biden doesn't get close. But let's say Trump announces... Give me a name. I got a good one. You ready? Trump Gabbard. Okay. America First 2024. I mean, we're not Republicans because there, there's a lot of intrigue. See, we, we have this suspicion that this moment in American political history is unlike any other. And America has a lot of political history. I mean, it's probably, um, it's unprecedented times. That probably isn't. I mean, there's probably some historical um, comparison that we could come up with. Perot didn't win any electoral votes so and that's what you really got to think about rev and i were talking during the break hypothetically i mean nobody knows this is true but i mean for argument's sake and we're speculating we're opining um biden runs again and gets somewhere around 43 40 percent of the vote trump runs as an independent gets 31 to 3 percent of the vote larry hogan is the establishment darling you know they get their way they get their party back and they get their feelings hurt by coming third in a three-horse race to the independent voter. The independent voter, for the first time ever, gets more uh, votes than a you know one of the two uh, the nominee of one of the two major political parties in America. But where do you win uh, electoral votes? Ross Perot got seventeen percent of the vote, did not win a single electoral vote. What is the number one state Trump has a chance to win? West Virginia. Number two, uh, Wyoming. I mean, I'm just making these up. I mean, they're, they're, South Carolina's a red state, but because of our African-American population, it's not as red as West Virginia. It's not as red as Montana, not as red as, um, as Nebraska or, or Wyoming, some of the western states um, that have, you know, let's be honest, very um, highly concentrated population of Caucasians in some of these um, western states. So... What, what does that do to the Electoral College? I mean, if you come to, let's, let's go to Georgia. I mean, now let's find the quintessential 
uh, swing state. Let's say Ohio. Does Trump win Ohio, or do the Republicans vote split themselves enough that Biden wins Ohio? You see the complexities of a third party. I mean, I do believe this. I believe this with every fiber of my being. I believe that Trump could get close in the popular vote. I don't think he could beat Biden with a Republican in, but if it were a truly establishment Republican like a, a Larry Hogan or Rob Portman or somebody like that, um, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, I mean, if someone like that ran, their ceiling is only about 25 or 6% of the electorate. Trump's is higher than that because America First is a bigger universe within the Republican Party. You put Tulsi Gabbard on the ticket um, as an America First independent, is she likely to pull Democrats over? America First Democrats, um, anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, um, anti-China Democrats. I mean, it, Biden's not shown to be any of that. I mean, Biden's not shown any at all. I mean, B- Biden is absolutely interested in this um, this Davos worldview, you know, that we're all interconnected and everybody is to share everybody's wealth and, and prosperity. I mean, Biden's kind of the quintessential poster child of that. But but I, And I looked last night. I just can't see a scenario. I mean, it's obvious Trump could cost the Republicans, period. And he may kickstart a, a third-party movement that, that is sustainable. I don't, I don't know that. But, um, but, but what if we get to mid-next year? And, and all the data says that Trump, ha- Trump can't win the primary, but he can't win the general. I mean, there's just no way. Trump fatigue syndrome, uh, for whatever reason, uh, people are just not going there again. I mean, there's a multitude of reasons that that could happen. I mean, he's got to roll the dice to believe he can win Again, I mean, he can win. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a there's an absolute way Donald Trump can win. But I think the the Nevada Senate race, the the Arizona Senate race, the Pennsylvania Senate race, the Georgia Senate race. I think we all have to admit, no matter how much of a, an America firster you are, I mean, that that's rain on the parade. I mean, it's hard to accept those four defeats as not somewhat of an indictment on Donald Trump. And his involvement, um, his polarizing effect, or the polarizing effect he has on on many of these races. I'm trying to get in touch with Kahaley. Um, text with Robert a little bit Monday. Didn't talk to him at all yesterday uh, or Wednesday. But but I want to try to get a hold of him and see if I can get him to come on the air. I want him to think about it. Is there any way that a that a, a third party candidate could cost the two parties enough electoral votes to force the House of Representatives to cast a ballot on who the next president is going to be. I mean, if Trump wants to be a transformational political figure, that's what he should do. And and I'll tell you, as somebody who doesn't want Democrats to win elections, I'm willing to go there. Mm. I mean, it's a little bit Jim Domini. (laughs) I mean, it really is. I mean, remember DeMint said something, and I'm like, well, that's stupid. I mean, why would you say that? Um, I mean, I'm I'm not backing up. I'm not giving in to the establishment. I mean, it's obvious they're not giving in to us. So, so how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? I don't see any way. I mean, if two-thirds of the party can't win without the one-third, and one-third can't win without the two-thirds, and the two-thirds says, well, I'm not doing it, and the one-third says, well, I'm not doing it, I mean, where do you go from there? So, so you'd have him win, or you'd have him lose states for the Republicans in order to send the Republicans a message as an independent? Well, I mean, isn't that what they're doing to us, Rev? I mean, didn't the America, yeah. first, didn't the America first to show up for Kemp? Didn't the America Firsters show up for, um, I mean, who did the, Ameri- name, a, a, name a status quo Republican 
a, a an establishment Republican that the America Firster didn't vote for. I mean, the America Firster yeah. isn't crazy about some of these candidates, but they did it anyway, right? I mean, once again, give me a Republican who lost his seat because America First Republicans didn't show up and vote for the person with an R beside their name. I mean, I can give you example after example after example of Republicans losing because establishment-oriented Republican voters decided to take a pass or, worst yet, vote for the Democrat. And I get the independent. I mean, I understand, you know, that's what the Republicans will argue. We lost these races because independents were turned off by the MAGA extremism. I don't buy that for a second. I mean, I do believe that Trump turns off some Republicans, but I think he attracts as many Republicans with the America First agenda, the pro-worker, pro-family agenda. So I think it's a wash with independents. I mean, I think Blake Masters lost. I think Dr. Oz lost. I think Herschel Walker lost. I think um, Adam Laxalt lost because of ballot harvesting and the investment Democrats have made in that, you know, pre-election ordeal and a certain percentage, nobody knows exactly how many, but a certain percentage of establishment Republican voters didn't even vote for the people with R beside their name. And how much longer are you going to allow that to be normal? I mean, the one-third have decided we'll wait. I mean, we'll wait. We think you'll come to your senses. You'll give up. You'll give in. Trump flies off into the sunset, and and you guys kind of go back on to, uh, you, we get you back in line like you're supposed to be uh, back in line. Let's go to the phone. Jason and Marion. Hello, Jason. You're on. Hey, good morning, fellas. Um, Ken, I got a question. I want to get your take if your scenario actually plays out and it actually has to go to the Congress. Now, obviously, let's just take the Santa out of the picture. And, you know, it all. I guess this all depends on who Trump um, would pick as a running mate and, you know, whether he takes Christy Nome or. I just pick it. Yeah, like you said, pick anybody. But what do you think would happen if it actually does get to go to the Congress? I mean, do you think the Congress would pick Trump over Hogan? Or, I mean, how would that play out? Let, yep. me, let me hear your take on that. Th- that's thing. interesting. Yeah, Thank interesting. you, Jason. Appreciate that. Yeah, I thought about that last night. I don't have a clue. <laughs> I, mean, I don't have any idea how that would play itself out. I mean, who, who's the power brokers in Congress? That would be high drama. I mean, it would be absolute wow. high drama. Um, that, that would be a very interesting. Nobody would get a majority. I mean, I'll assure you with that. I mean, it would be, you know, 435 divided by three. I mean, it would be hotly contested. And um, that that's an interesting question. And I did think about it last night, but I wasn't able to come up with what I thought was a reasonable conclusion. Take a break. Back in a minute. Buddy of the South drinks eggnog. Oh, I love eggnog. Yeah. Wow. You don't like eggnog? I certainly would not admit that down here. No, man. You know our listenership, what they think of eggnog? I don't. What, okay. What well, do people me, think? I didn't know there was a thing to think about eggnog. Well, well, I, like, I, mean, I can assure you, conservative Southern Republicans, by and large, don't care much for eggnog. Just the way it sounds <laughs> is a little bit... Um, anyway. Well, well, there there is a brand of eggnog called Southern Comfort. You know, yeah. Okay. That's marketing genius, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Greg Television, Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker is with us. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Ken. How are you doing this So morning? before we get to politics, and I want to get into your private life. So somebody tells me you're rocking at the um, Gamecock Georgetown Hoya basketball game this past Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was a good game. Wow, I went to OT, uh, and uh, uh, good for the Gamecocks for pulling it out in, in overtime. And uh, I was very impressed by uh, the way they 
pulled it all together because uh, they were down uh, with about a minute left. They tied it up in regulation, and then they went on to win it in overtime. They did, and Patrick Ewing with a towel over his shoulder reminds me of the late John Thompson, who was head coach of the uh, the Hoyas when they were coach. the premier. I mean, they were the one of the premier programs in all of America. I could go on forever about that. Let's stop. So, so but let's stay, let, let's segue from athletics to politics. Herschel Walker is the greatest college football player I've ever seen. He is a legend in the state of Georgia, but he ain't going to be a senator. Um, what do we make of that, John? Well, that he is a lot of talents, uh, but the talents are on the football field. They're, they're not as a politician, and that's pretty clear. You know, it was pretty clear throughout his campaign. Uh, and he also had a lot of personal baggage that he brought to the table, which made him not a good candidate. Uh, you know, Mitch McConnell spoke about candidate quality. Well, I think he was thinking of Herschel Walker when he said that phrase. And uh, and we saw what happened. You know, even though Brian Kemp won his race uh, for Georgia governor's reelection race by seven and a half points, uh, he you know could not bring Herschel Walker across the finish line with him. Uh, no coattails as it relates to him in the in the general midterm election, and it didn't help him as it relates to the the runoff election either. John, despite not being in office, the majority of attention anything Trump does makes news. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's, that's good for us because it's interesting and it always keeps a subject front and right. center. But, um, I mean, he's been in the news recently in a way that I, I would imagine he doesn't want to much be in the news. The family business um, has some issues. Well, the Trump Organization uh, convicted, uh, found guilty uh, as it relates to criminal tax fraud. What does it mean? Uh, it means that the Trump Organization will pay a $1.6 million fine. That's pennies for them. Uh, but it could impact uh, their business going forward, their ability to uh, get bank loans, uh, given this uh, criminal conviction. Uh, and it's, it's not a good thing that the uh, former president has to deal with uh, as it relates to that aspect of his life. And there are other things as well. Remember, he endorsed Herschel Walker, getting back to politics. Uh, he endorsed Mehmet Oz. He endorsed Don Baldock. He endorsed uh, Blake Masters. Um, all of those Senate candidates lost, and that doesn't reflect well on the former president. Yeah, he helped them win the Republican uh, nomination for the U.S. Senate, but was not enough, uh, his endorsement, to win the general election. John, I want to get your take on this, if you don't mind. I mean, one story that's not being reported very much, I did see an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, is this um, this former FBI general counsel, um, James Baker, went to work at Twitter now there's some questions about how involved he was as a lawyer at the FBI in huh. kind of suggesting to Twitter that there's a story out there that has the markings of Russia disinformation. We found out now how legitimate the story really is. What, what, what do you make of that story? I don't know much about it. Uh, you're, you're telling me something that is news to me uh, about uh, this individual who formerly served as a lawyer at the FBI and then, according to what you're telling me, then went to work for Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, that's uh, certainly permissible uh, for someone to leave government service to work in the private sector. But I, I honestly don't know enough about that story to weigh in on it. I'm in sorry. Interesting. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because the media is not talking about it. Nobody <laughs> but Fox News yeah. and the Wall Street Journal yeah. have well, touched on it. Well, what I mean, James Baker was general counsel of the FBI. I mean, there, yeah. There's reasons to believe that Baker went to Twitter as a representative of the FBI yeah. and strongly suggested that they basically violate free speech and, and government agencies yeah. aren't allowed to do that. Elon Musk thought so much of it that he exited James Baker from the business. And we believe once Dom, Jim Jordan becomes chair of the House Judiciary 
committee, yeah. there will be a full-fledged investigation. And the name well, James I, Baker, I think the media will be yeah. forced at some point in time, despite their reluctance, I think the media sure. will be forced at some point in time, if there's journalistic integrity left, to report on the right. James Baker FBI story. Well, I, I, I certainly will. Um, you know, if there are hearings, uh, we will cover them. Absolutely. I think that uh, House Republicans know that. Uh, we have to cover that. So yeah. uh, I, I look forward to that. You know, just a reminder, Twitter uh, is not a news organization. So if you wanted to read information in the run-up to the 2020 election about Hunter Biden's laptop, all you had to do was flip on Fox News. I worked at Fox at the time. Uh, we were covering that story. Flip, uh, Go to NewYorkPost.com. They were the ones that essentially broke the story. So you could, you could certainly find information on that story. You just couldn't find it in terms of a link to those stories on Twitter. That is, that is definitely true. Yeah. Thank you, John. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Have a great day as well. Wow. Okay. okay. Uh, sho- it kind of shows. Didn't know anything about the story. Yeah. That's unbelievable to me. And we look, we, we built somewhat of a uh, a friendship with John Decker. Yeah. That is unbelievable to me that the the senior national editor and White House correspondent at Great Television knows nothing about the story involving James Baker. Wow. I mean, that's shocking to me. Now, now, maybe he knows and didn't want to lead us to believe he knows. I mean, he's inside the belly of the beast. He's inside the beltway. There's a certain expectation uh, and privilege that goes along with that. I mean, Rev and I looked at one another like, wow, does not know the story of James Baker, Twitter, and the FBI. Um, that's that's bizarre to me. That that's uh, it's it's. <laughs> I'd love to say it's surprising. But it really is not. Well, when the analysis showed that the mainstream media had not even talked about it, I mean, zero seconds. So they obviously are trying to not talk about it. It is I, it is the biggest story in American politics today. I think it is. And it's interesting that he knew everything about Trump's tax dealings. I mean, knew everything about the former president, the $1.6 million fine he has to pay to settle a dispute he had with the IRS and federal government in some way, shape, or form, but knew nothing about Nothing about the Hunter Biden laptop story as it relates to Twitter and James Baker. Jim Jordan, we're counting on you. And I mean this sincerely, guys. But the one-sidedness has to stop. I mean, I think we just saw a classic example of what we're so deeply concerned and bothered by, how in bed the media is with the establishment narrative. I mean, Elon Musk thought enough about it, and and we're we're finding out now in in the last day or two that – um that the guy responsible for vetting the information that was allowed to get to Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss was James Baker. And I think Elon Musk, I mean, Elon Musk led us to believe in in some of his tweets that um, he asked for an explanation about why it's taking so long to get Matt Taibbi. Remember we had a drop and then there was an expected another drop of um, the Twitter files and we didn't get it when we expected. So Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss reach out to someone at Twitter and says, I thought we were supposed to get this information and we've not gotten it. And some way, somehow, James Baker was the the general counsel at Twitter responsible for vetting the information. And I guess Musk sat down with him and said, what, what are you doing? I mean, why is it taking so long to get the information to these people that I told we'd get it to? And the, uh, the answer was unsatisfactory. And he was not fired, but exited from the country. <laughs> I think exited and fired means... About the same I thing. So. The Silicon Valley gazillionaires must not say fired, but rather, but rather <laughs> exited. But it, but it blows my mind that the great television's senior national editor and White House correspondent said he knew nothing about the story. 
That is, I mean, that's crazy to me. That's scary to me. That's bizarre to me. I'd love to say it's surprising to me, but it's really not. The only main line, and by main line, I mean, I mean, Fox and MSNBC are looked at conservative and liberal, CNN liberal. I'm talking about mainline news organizations that I've seen report this story is the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they, they've had somewhat of a, um, they've covered this story to some degree, not, not as well as I think they should have, but to some degree, they have covered it. And it's breaking every day. I mean, there, there are revelations every day that we're finding out. And, and once again, um, I mean, J- John said, you know, if you want your news, you don't go to Twitter. Well, there's 250 million people today going to Twitter. I mean, they've got 250 million active users. Um, I don't know how many subscribers the New York Times has or or the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post combined, NBC, ABC, NIMI. I mean, we know the viewership and the, the readers, subscribers of some of these major newspapers that have, you know, in historic times, but been the voice of the media in America. But Twitter is the digital town square. Uh, there were people gathered to give opinions, listen to opinions, um, find news articles they find interesting. And um, and for a, I don't know, Riff, that, that, that's concerning to me. I mean, that, that that's... Well, it goes to show where the editors of these publications and these news organizations, they're just not going to allow this story to get any, I guess, unless until they have to. Well, I mean, Jim Jordan will be the, the guy that forces this narrative or this story on the mainstream media. If Jordan chairs the, the House Judiciary Committee and, and subpoenas James Baker for, for his role and responsibility and, and basically... I mean, in all honesty, as a government actor, suppressing free speech, violating the First Amendment, what is uh, the charge there? I mean, it's violation of free speech. I get that. Censorship. I mean, we know that happened, but we believe Twitter can do that. Facebook can do that. The question we asked yesterday, did Baker go to Facebook? I mean, we know he went to Twitter. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he went to Twitter. That's documented. I mean, we know that as a result of the Twitter files. That he was the FBI general counsel who went to someone at Twitter and says, uh, can you help us with this? And their response was handled. We don't know who went to Facebook, but but Mark Zuckerberg on the Joe Rogan podcast said somebody from the FBI asked us to change and alter our algorithms so this Hunter Biden story would not get as much coverage. Now, they didn't censor. They didn't deplatform anybody. Twitter did. I mean, Kaylee McEnany retweeted the story and her Twitter account was shut down. The New York Post Twitter account was suspended, one of the oldest news organizations in America. That's bizarre to me that John would say he knows nothing about that story. Let's go to the phone. Uh, our call drop. Okay, I'm yeah, sorry. 843-661-09. Sorry. Sorry. The thing about the James Baker story that concerns me even more, and I guess this was because you have a level of encouragement that some of this thing, some of this is coming to light as Elon makes sure that all this is transparent and it comes out. But then when you hear yesterday – he fires James Baker, and then there are reports that James Baker was vetting this stuff before it was going to the reporters, and he possibly hid and or deleted. And you got to know he's deleting the really incriminating stuff. Well, you that, don't know that. Right. I mean, but, you're speculating. That's where your mind I'll, I'll goes. I'll agree with you. Because if not, then why did he do it? But what do we know? I mean, there's some things we speculate on. What, what do we know? We do know that James Baker was the one that convinced Kevin Kleinsmith to alter a document to obtain a FISA warrant. I mean, we know that to be true. That's recorded. I mean, that's in the record, so to speak. There's been a proceeding, a legal proceeding, where James Baker was the guy that encouraged Kevin Kleinsmith to alter a document that, that I mean, 
in other words, when the FISA court judge saw the Steele dossier, it, he was led to believe by altering documentation that it was not opposition research, but rather credible information that some media report, some journalist had dug up on Trump. I mean, we know that to mm-hmm. be true. So the same guy that does that, the same guy that does that goes to Twitter on behalf of the Biden family. Now, now once again, I don't know, but here's what we don't know. We don't know if the Biden campaign went to the FBI and said to a, a James Baker, we've got this problem coming our way. Can you help us? I, mean, they, we, I don't know that we'll ever understand that. But Baker had been ba- Baker had already proven his worth. I mean, he'd proven he would be the guy that kind of um, got in that gray area when necessary. And, and here's what I think happened. Once again, I can't, I'm speculating. We know the Klein-Smith story. We know the FISA warrant. We know the altering of the document. We know Baker was involved in that. I mean, that's proven. That's recorded. That has been part of the legal proceeding. Everything else we're speculating. My speculation is that the Biden campaign went to Baker in the FBI and asked for help. And Baker went to Facebook and Twitter and said, we really don't want this Trump guy to stay here. I mean, do you know how problematic it's been for all of us? You know how troubling and chaotic it's been for all of us? We need this story to not see the light of day. I mean, Facebook has a lot of subscribers or, or a lot of accounts. Twitter has a lot of accounts. You guys can really put your, I mean, you, you can you can sway the election. I mean, you, you can decide, I mean, if this story gets mainstream and people begin questioning Burisma and some of the financial arrangements that his son has been involved in when he was vice president, if they find out he flew on, you know, Air Force Two as part of an entourage that went to China, you know, discuss business, and Biden says he knows nothing about his sons. You know, if, if, I mean, if, if Tony Belinsky, if Tony Bobolinsky is believable and, and his story becomes a little more mainstreamed, in other words, if George Stephanopoulos, I mean, that would never happen, but if somebody like that, somebody other than Tucker Carlson sat down and recorded his version of what happened, I mean, this could really affect the outcome of the election. We don't know that. I mean, I think that's what happened. I mean, I think Baker went to Facebook. I think Baker went to Twitter. And I think Baker went on behalf of the Biden campaign. But when the Biden presidency became a reality, I think, and, and especially when Musk buys or starts rumored about Twitter, I think the Biden presidency, somebody in that organization, uh, Ron Klain, a chief of staff, said, guys, you know we've got some, some cleanup to do with Twitter. Well, what do you mean? Well, you remember we sent James to Twitter to make sure that story uh, didn't see the light of day. In fact, they, they, they did everything and more. I mean, it was not just um, hack content material. It was censored. I mean, they, they deplatformed, uh, suspended the account of the New York Post and Kaylee McEnany. So they did for us more than we ever expected or imagined they would. Now, now we've got this story. Now we've got this problem with Elon. I mean, Elon professes to be a free speech absolutist. It's rumored that he's thinking about buying Twitter. We, we've got to clean that up. And when Baker goes back to Twitter, as an FBI agent on behalf of a presidential campaign, that is a direct violation of the First Amendment. That's where the trouble is. A lot of these other things we can speculate, but if we can find out what I believe to be true, to be true, and that is that the Biden campaign became the Biden presidency, and the Biden presidency asked James Baker to go clean that up. And you know how he cleaned it up? He got a job at Twitter. I mean, imagine that. He lives the FBI as their general counsel, to become general counsel at Twitter. I mean, that, that leaves nothing to chance. I mean, that, he's already proven that he's a team player. He'll do whatever it takes to get it straightened out. And he's still trying to do it. 
to the last breath mm-hmm. by basically, this is once again speculation, by disallowing Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss to give the information that they need to have as um, as, as as full disclosing a Twitter file as they possibly can. That's scary. Combine that with the fact that great television senior national editor and White House correspondent knows nothing about that story that, you know, uh, college dropout from a town with no stoplight knows from one side to the other. Wow. Take a break. Back in a minute. It's strange that I would know the name of seven people who work for the FBI. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, it, I shouldn't know the name of seven people who work at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But I mean, if they're doing their job, it's a little bit like the umpire of a baseball game, right? I mean, if, if the FBI is doing what they're supposed to be doing, us politicos may know the director, but that's it. I mean, yeah. we don't know in, anybody invisible, else. Otherwise invisible. And, then I, and I wrote down yesterday, from memory, Jim Comey, Andy McCabe, Jim Baker, James Baker, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Kevin Kleinsmith, Christopher Ray. Damn it, I should know that many people's <laughs> name from the FBI if they're not politically motivated and staying in their lane. I'm in my lane, and my lane is politics. Law enforcement and national security, I mean, that, that's kind of their forte, CIA, FBI, and the likes. And I just, um, they just kind of drifted too far. And I'm hoping when the new Congress convenes that Jim Jordan chairs a House Judiciary Committee and they asked James Baker under oath, penalty of perjury, what what were you thinking when you went to Twitter and suggested they change some algorithms and, and suppress a story that may or may not have had an impact on the 2020 presidential election? I know in just a second here, we're going to go to Congressman-elect Russell Fry on the we phone. We are. Um, can you tell the story again? When you were lieutenant governor, you took a vote because you were a tie-breaking vote, and there was a consequential vote as it relates to the 7th Congressional District. The lieutenant governor of South Carolina in its former construct, I mean, it was ceremonial and symbolic. I mean, I had a nice, I had a nice office, and I had a couch that belonged to John C. Calhoun. And I um, mean, if I were single, I'd probably get some chicks. Um, <laughs> I mean, there, there was some perks. A purple robe. Yeah, I had a purple robe. There were some perks. Um, but... The, the only time I could remember casting an important vote, I mean, I voted probably three or four times, and we'd challenge the rule of the chair, and you point, I mean, you, you place things in certain committee. But yeah, during the, um, during the re- redistricting, South Carolina had grown in population, the Horry County area, Grand Strand along the coast, all up and down South Carolina had grown enormously, and it led to a new congressional district. There was kind of a uh, battle in the Senate between um, the, the Beaufort and Low Country delegation and the P.D. Horry County delegation, and Jeff Gossett was clerk of the Senate, and Jeff asked me one day, a couple of three days before the vote was to come, he said, hey, you know this thing's going to be close. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it could be a tie. And Jeff was good at head county. could be a tie. I said, Jeff, I don't like to vote, but I'd love to vote on this. What do you mean? I said, I'd love to be, I mean, I'm, I'm from the P.D. I, I'm one of them. I, I'm a homer. We all are to some degree. So if given the opportunity to cast a tie-breaking vote in the name of a Beaufort-centric congressional district or an Ori PD-centric congressional district, I mean, that's the easiest vote for me to ever take. And it took me about two seconds. It ended up being a tie. And I had to cast a tie-breaking vote, and I did exactly what I would do again. I voted for the PD in Ori County because that's home to me. And um, Tom Davis got real aggravated and thought the analytics showed that um, Beaufort deserved it more than than the Grand Strand and PD. But as a result of that, we got a new uh, new congressional district. Um, Tom Rice became our first congressman to represent that newly formed district. But Russell Fry is now our congressman-elect. He will go to Washington in January, get sworn in, and participate. And um, hopefully, 
a Judiciary Committee or two or three. Russell is with us. Good Go morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. I, and I love that history lesson. I've heard it before, um, but it's actually really cool when you think about that because in this region, you know, Grand Strand, the PD, we don't always get a lot of regional wins sometimes. So to, to you know, 10 years ago, I remember all the, the Republican parties of all the counties in the 7th were up at the state house, and there was a really big concerted push to get that seat created in this area. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's actually really cool in, in, a, in a lot of ways that you got to cast that tie-breaking vote that sent that thing over um, and created that seat here as opposed to a more low country uh, oriented one. And Russell, really I got cool. to know you a little bit beating around uh, when I was in Horry County running for lieutenant governor. You were in the Surfside Republican Party. You were in front. Uh, I mean, you, you were all in the middle of it. I mean, if you don't mind, as much as you're comfortable with, tell a little bit of your political history. I mean, we know who you are today. And, and you were kind of the chosen one to challenge Tom Rice and Trump endorsed. And all of a sudden, you are a kind of a national story to some degree. But but where did Russell Fry cut his teeth in South Carolina politics? Yeah. Listen, you know, I had jumped in early when I was a kid in college. I'd go help people on their campaigns just because I wanted to elect good people, right? I mean, we all strive. So, you know, I'd be out in front of a Burger King at 7 a.m. waving signs. I mean, that's just kind of how I was, you know, brought up and, um, you know, got out of law school, was involved in the party, um, you know, was the executive committeeman for Horry County. So, um, you know, I got to go to Columbia and, and be, you know, sit on, serve on the executive committee with, you know, Matt Moore was the chairman and Chad Conley and, of course, now Drew McKissick. So um, it, it's been, you know, from a grassroots perspective, I was kind of always in the trenches. You know, you needed a, a young guy with a, you know, weak mind and a strong back. Like, I was your guy. You know, I'd go put out signs and wave signs and door knock and get chased by, you know, pit bulls and chihuahuas. So it, it just is, you know, kind of ingrained that grassroots style. Russell, you earned your stripes in Washington, but you don't have any credibility in Columbia. I mean, in, um, in Columbia, you earned your stripes. In Washington, you're a newbie. you got to go out there and respect the system, respect the process. But your voters won't change. I mean, your voters don't want, um, you know, kind of a, um, a slow-paced change to happen in government. How do you balance that? The fact that you know you're, you're kind of new to Washington, and you got to be careful about whose toes you step on, but, but the expectation that the state and your district have for making sure – you actively and aggressively represent them. Look, I think you. I think we manage expectations from the beginning. I mean, there is not. You know, you're one of 435 when you get up there, and you're a freshman. Okay, so let's just let's put that into perspective. But on top of that, Congress has always moved slow, and in divided government, it's going to move slow as well. And so, the biggest thing that we can do, you talked about this uh, from an oversight perspective. Oversight's going to happen. Now, we'll see what what turns up from that. That's an important function because that, I mean, the, the Biden administration has had zero oversight. So I'm actually really excited about that component. And I do think that there's some, you know, there's opportunities for some legislative wins, too. Don't know what those look like. We can pass a million bills in, in, the, in the House of Representatives and send them to the Senate, but we got a Democratic Senate. So, so what, you know, what is there ultimately to, to jostle around? Uh, but what you know, the the biggest function of a house is, is, you know, I had a chairman tell me this one time in the state house, and he said it's not sometimes the bills you pass, but the bills that you kill, the bad bills that you kill just by being where you are. And so I think for for the House representatives being Republican controlled, um, that's a win. Uh, so th- there's there's some things that we can do, but I'm you know I'm excited about it. And, and again, 
you're one of one of a few, but what I lack in seniority, I'll, I'll make up for in hard work. That's just how I roll. Russell, how have you prepared? I mean, have you been going to Washington? I mean, in other words, walk us through what has happened in your life since winning uh, the election. Yeah, it came quick. So the week after the election, I was in Washington, D.C. for a full week for orientation, round one. Okay, so all the freshmen gather. We all stay at the uh, hotel downtown. You know, they've got everything laid out. You get there and you get your credentials and you get, you know, and you get to your hotel room and there's a giant box of books, right? You know, ethics manuals and this manual and that manual and, you know, how to how to be oriented to Congress and D.C. and, you know, at least understanding where to go, right? So there's just a ton of information that they throw at you. And there's panels, you know, from 9 to 10, there's a panel on on rules of the house. And from 10 to 11, there's a panel on workplace rights and what your employees can do. And, I mean, there's just a lot of – it's just a lot of information, right? They don't, they don't really talk policy. Uh, and then, of course, you meet with your own side, right? So Republicans kind of go off in this corner over here. You know, and we're discussing rules and you're getting to meet members and you're talking to people who are running for leadership positions. And it is I mean, when you talk about drinking water out of a fire hose, it really is. And I pulled the most freshman thing ever. You know, I'm walking down this hallway and I see this really great door and it's an impressive door. It's big. um, You know, it's got the wood on it. It looks you know, clean. I was like, that's where I'm supposed to go. And I opened the door thinking that I was walking to into an auditorium. And it was a broom closet. So I'm sure that everyone that was watching that and saw that was like, that's a freshman because he just walked into a broom closet. Um, but, yeah, so to pull-to-toe freshman move. Uh, and then this, we had another week of orientation last week, similar stuff. Um, and at the end, they, you get to pick an office, uh, which is kind of like a mix between the Hunger Games and the NFL draft. Okay, so you're scouting around, you know, offices that you can get. And you come into this room on Friday morning and they draw, you get to draw a number ultimately, you know, you get in there, they call the roll. If you're not there, you don't get to pick, you pick last, you get whatever's left over. So you have to be there, physically be there. Uh, you draw a number. I was, I was number 50 something on the list of drawing, but I drew number nine. So I was in the top 10 to, to pick an office. Uh, and then you go and you got five minutes on the clock. Um, so the p- person that draws number one, he gets to pick his office first. He got five minutes. The next person's got the next five. So it really is like the NFL draft meets the Hunger Games. So it's, uh, it's a pretty cool experience. But it's been a lot. It's been a lot of information, good information. But, um, you know, we're getting ready. So Russell, what, what sort of interaction have you had with other members of the South Carolina delegation, both in the House and Senate? Uh, not, not so much the Senate. Um, I've, I've talked to them a little bit, but more so the House. And, and our House delegation has been fantastic. Jeff Duncan's been great. Ralph Norman's been great. William Tim is Nancy Mason. I mean, they've all been helpful. Uh, their staff have been helpful. So, you know, there's kind of a, a spree decor a little bit on, on you know, he, well, let's welcome the new guy and make sure that he, you know, if he has any questions, let us know, uh, that kind of stuff. So they're, they've been incredibly gracious and i am really appreciative of that because you just don't know what you don't know i mean um, i've done the legislative thing before at the state house but not in congress and you know you don't know where things are the process for getting this or that 
So uh, on that front, you know, we, we've got a great delegation, and they've been in- incredibly accommodating. Russell, interacting with your constituency, I mean, how, how do you expect to do that? I mean, we have an office in, in Horry County, in Florence. I mean, in other words, if someone, after um, you're sworn in, needs to get in touch with their uh, congressman, what, what sort of processes are you putting in place? I mean, I would imagine the staff has to be hired, um, you know, and, and, and a process has to be implemented, put in place. Um, you had a former congressman, now you got a new one. Kind of help us understand if people in your district need Russell's Fry, Russell Fry's helper, or to get in touch with the congressman, wh- how do they do that? So on, <clears throat> on January 3rd, everything switches on, right? So as soon as we're sworn in, everything is like a light switch. And so at that point, I can sign a lease for a place for a district office. Now we're keeping the same PD office that Congressman Rice had. So for for people who are familiar with where that was at, it was at the Truist Building, um, downtown Florence. Um, So we're keeping that same office. I do know that. Myrtle Beach, we're we're looking around at a couple different spaces. But so on January 3rd, everything switches on. Official accounts switch on, official Twitter accounts, the website, the phone numbers, everything. And so we're going to do a real big push media-wise to get that out there so that people know how to get in touch with the office. Not necessarily me, but with the office so that they can get uh, a tour of the Capitol, a constituent issue uh, with an agency help, um, a flag over the, of the Capitol. I mean, there's just a lot of things that Congress people do. Um, and dealing with agencies, obviously, is the biggest one. So that will all come January 3rd. As soon as we're sworn in, it's like a light switch that switches on, um, and, and that will be up and running. Last question. Um, a lot of people help you get elected. A lot of people want to participate in your glorious day, January 3rd. Can they go to Washington? Will there be events that the public elected to these sorts of events? I mean, for the guy on the street that wants to be a part of you being sworn as a member of Congress, are there opportunities available for those people? Yeah, reach out if you're really interested in going. We, we, you know, there's, the swearing-in is very tight. Obviously, it's like family. Um, but, you know, there's, there's going to be stuff up there. And then we're going to have guys, you know, we're going to have kind of a grand opening of offices too, right? So when we, when we officially sign the lease in the Florence location, come by there. That's, that's easy. I mean, see the office, meet the staff. Um, would love for, for people to be a part of it. Well, I'm happy for you, my man. I'm going to try to pin you down to maybe get you on here about once a month. Just kind of a congressional update, if you don't mind. Uh, we didn't do it as well as we should have. Not Tom's fault. It was probably more more on us. But I want to get off on the right foot. I want to make sure that people understand the hard work you're doing on their behalf in Washington. And I think we can use this radio show to communicate your message to a, um, a percentage of your constituency that serves them and you as well. Thank you, Russell. Appreciate that a lot. No, Ken, really appreciate it and appreciate your listeners too. I mean, and, and I love that, being able to come on this show, being able to talk about the things that we're doing, even when people disagree. I mean, that's fine. That's, that's just good for healthy debate. But just getting, being able to talk about the things that, that you're working on, I think is incredibly important. So good deal. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you, my man. We'll talk sooner than later. All right. Bye, y'all. Congressman-elect Russell Fry. Uh, Russell actually talked uh, Thursday or Friday of last week. He's excited, getting up to speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I love hearing drinking, the, the, drinking sto- the uh, story, uh, you know, the behind-the-scenes story about how that orientation goes and yeah. how he's learning the ropes there. That's that's cool. I like. Yeah, that. I had a I um, shared that. I had a transition process when I got elected, and um, I had to go to uh, presiding over the Senate boot camp. I mean, that's what I remember. <laughs> I mean, I knew so little about that. I mean, I've told you this story before, and it's just, it's hundred percent true. The first session of South Carolina Senate I ever witnessed in my life, I presided over. 
I mean, that's, that's like Jerry Clower saying the first college football game he ever saw, he played in. The first right. game of South excuse me, the first session of the South Carolina Senate that I ever witnessed, I presided over. <laughs> and I had to go to what I call presiding over the Senate boot camp to make sure I didn't make a complete and total fool of myself. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, Mike. Good morning, fellas. A um, couple things. Uh listen to you every day. I like your show. Ken, uh, I think you're as close to Russ Limbaugh as anybody because you bring music and you bring comedy to your show. But uh, I'm calling because of this John Decker guy. Uh, and I want to give Freehold a shout-out for the Stevie Ray clip every once in a while. I love that. Um, but uh, John, uh, he kind of shot his credibility this morning. Uh, you can have him on and the rest of them folks on from Washington. And uh, I think after this morning, nobody's going to believe what comes out of their mouth, even if they said the like turn green. Appreciate you. Hope you guys have a great day. Thank you, my man. Appreciate you calling. Thank you for the kind words. I'll agree with that. I mean, that, to, to me, that was a bridge too far. I mean, I, look, I want John to come on because John is in the middle of it. I mean, he has a perspective. You guys know what discount to apply. I mean, you, you know, is it 20%, 30%, 40%? You know the world he lives in. You know how long he's been in that world. You know how um, jaded you can become participating in that world. But that did surprise me. I mean, I expected John to say this is a um, this is a developing story. There are some things we know, a lot of things we don't know. We're going to stay on top of it at Great Television to make sure we report as accurately and responsibly as we can. But to flippantly say, I know nothing about what you're talking about. John knows what we're talking about. I'll assure you that people in Washington know the name James Baker. They know there's a story headed their way. They just don't want to deal with it. And I think Gray Television has probably told John Decker, hey, when you talk to these guys on these radio shows, shut it down. Shut it down. Don't let it go anywhere. Those guys are inquisitive. Sometimes they're a little bit pushy that they can be entrapping, so to speak. So just shut it down. Tell them you don't know what they're talking about. And that is incredibly unfortunate because, once again, I'm a college dropout from a town with, from a town with no stoplight who hosts a four-hour radio show that has a little bit of influence in the world of which we broadcast. John is the senior national editor, White House correspondent, and a good dude. I'm mean, a genuinely good guy. Uh, Rev corresponds with John off the air. Mm-hmm. He is genuinely a good dude, but that's dropping the ball. I mean, that's absolutely, to me, derelict in your duty to be able to discuss things that are timely and political, and I can't think of anything that we need to, need to be paying closer attention to today than where this story leads. And that's unfortunate. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Got a lot of entangled stories going on today, as we always do. I mean, this show, I mean, we said it a hundred times. We actually have a bumper that says this. Seinfeld is a show about nothing. We are a show about everything under the sun. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I've been on this rant about higher education for a decade. The student bubble, a student debt bubble, the number of kids that are being convinced that, you know, the only way to be successful in life is to get a four-year education. And I think there's a revelation going on in society today where families and kids are taking um, kind of another look at another path forward. Combine that with some of the demographic realities. Remember we talked about 2008, people having fewer kids. Uh, that's going to create a challenge 
In other words, in two or three or four years, there will be fewer 18-year-olds in society. Um, college campuses aren't full of 60-year-olds. They're full of 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. CEO of Young Americans for Liberty, Lauren Darty, is with us. Lauren, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So if higher education were a stock, I would short instead of long. I would be bearish instead of bullish. Am I right or wrong? Well, I think, in my opinion, we're just going to see uh, evolution of higher education. I think uh, it's going to look very differently in 20 years than it does now. And so uh, I would look for the the nuance and the change in it rather than the de- decrease, personally. But do you believe there's a kind of a, um, a demographic aftershock from the Great Recession of 2008? People just, um, they were uncertain about their future, their employment. Um, they decided to not have kids, maybe not even get married. Um, and, and that's really beginning to create a dilemma or dynamic that higher education will have to address or deal with. Yes, the, the demographics are, are changing and higher education is going to have to uh, adjust to that. But I think uh, the even bigger impact on them is going to come from uh, students who have wisely uh, reflected upon the, the the struggles of the students that are older than they are. And they've, they've watched these older students take out so much uh, student loan debt and then struggle to pay it back. And uh, so the smart students are going to look at that and question, is that the right path for them? So Lauren, and so, I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry. If you ahead. were, well, I mean, no, if you, I interrupted you, I thought you were finished. If you were giving higher education advice, what sort of, I mean, you're talking about this evolution, this new normal, this, this, um, this change that's on its way. How do you think higher education should adjust or calibrate? Well, I think higher education needs to reorient itself to be very practical to people. And I say this as someone who is curious about pretty much everything uh, under the sun. I love learning, and I love learning about everything from ancient Peruvian history to uh, microbiology. Like, I love learning. But at the same time, most of those topics are not going to help me uh, on my uh, career tra- trajectory, and I encourage students to be practical about that. You don't want to graduate with so much debt that you can't buy your first first home at a at a you know age that you so desire, and so on. So, I think students should be practical about what they do. They should be practical about what they study. They should be practical about how much debt they take out, um, and then. Um, they can be curious learners in a variety of other ways, but prioritize practicality first would be my top uh, advice. Very well explained. Lauren, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Same to you. And, and I've said this over and over and over and over again. I mean, I, I'm not saying higher education is Enron, but it ain't Apple. I'll assure you with that. I mean, there, there's some serious challenges heading higher education's way. And it better be innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative. The very thing that lacks in education in general is what is going to be required for it to address some of these realities that it's going to have to deal with moving forward. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. That last segment kind of made me think of uh, how difficult it is to be um, this newfound liberal, not, not the liberal of five years ago, but the liberal of today, if you have children. Um, you know, it's real easy to be liberal um, and be fiscally liberal and not think about your children's future. Um, it's easy to be uh, when we talk about this transgenderism and, and not have children. 
Um, but anyways, Ken, about John Decker, uh, interesting tidbit. He went to the same school Trump did, uh, Wharton School of Business. Mm-hmm. But uh, are y'all able to play that segment back? Because I, I really wasn't quite paying attention. And then I, I heard a tone out of Ken that uh, all of a sudden I stopped everything I was doing. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that to get that honest, and not, not that you aren't honest, but to get that raw sort of uh, emotion out of you, Ken. Uh, but I think of Elon and Twitter, and I think they're realizing to a degree the gig is up. Um, and, and certainly could sense that out of John. But if y'all are able to key that back up again, that'd be interesting to kind of dissect. Thank you. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Uh, I'm going to be humble servant for a second. You ready? <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I fake humility with the best. I mean, I, I'm as egotistical and narcissistic as they come to some degree. But, but I do believe at times I have an obligation to you, our listeners, to not let somebody get away with something. I mean, I said what all of you wanted to say. I mean, I know I did. I felt it in my bones. I was so sure that I couldn't let John get away with that. Now I want John to come on next Thursday, and I want to be respectful to John, and I want to be congenial to John, and I want John to to continue to like coming on our show, but I can't let him say that and get away with it. I just can't, and I knew that there were many of you out there going, what do you mean you don't know about this? You've not heard about any of this so yeah i mean i did take on another tone and i looked at rev as if i'm asking for permission can i go after him or is this some kind of contractual agreement well we were or arrangement we, we have we were both looking I mean, at, we each looked other at one like, another like holy really? cow but what? he said he didn't know anything about it and and just so you know i mean let's give the total backstory decker sends us topics that he thinks are interesting and when the decker when decker i mean rev texts me the topics i mean we're, we're letting you really behind the scenes you may be bored with it may find it interesting So I ask Rev, has Decker told you what we're talking about? And Rev sends me a text, and it said, Georgia, Trump, and um, there was something else on there. Georgia, Trump, and, I mean, in in other words, you said McCarthy. And McCarthy, uh, the the speakership. So I respected John on Georgia because that's a timely issue. I respected Trump. I mean, I respected John on Trump. That's That's an issue. But, but to not have the Twitter FBI story in there led me to believe that he may have been, um, you know, told by someone to not talk about it. And I can't let that happen here. I mean, I just can't for the life of me. Doesn't mean that I don't respect John. Doesn't mean that I don't like John. But, but when he said, had he said, there's a story out there, Ken, but as a journalist, I don't know enough to talk about it. You're an opinion monster. I mean, you have a lot more runway than I do. That would have been fine. I mean, I think that's very appropriate. I mean, if I'm a journalist and I'm liberal and I'm at a UPN and I go to the Georgetown basketball games, I mean, I'm not crazy about talking about anything that may or may not incriminate a current president. I mean, I, I've flown on Air Force One a time or two or three. I mean, I don't want to mess that up, right? But but I, I just, when he said that, to me, it was inappropriate. And I had to do that for you. I, I just felt like that there, there were so many of you out there going, no, nah, you can't let him get away with that. And I didn't let him get away with it. I'm not going to let him get away with that. Um, if we're going to talk about Georgia, and we should, and if we're going to talk about Trump, and we should, then damn it, we're going to talk about the FBI and Twitter because we should. And when he chose to say, I know nothing about it, hogwash. I mean, that was my way of saying BS. John, you do know about it. Somebody's told you not to talk about it. So I'll tell you. I mean, if you notice what I did, 
I said, well, John, there's this story that you know nothing about, um, that, that, you know, James Baker was working for the FBI. And I mean, I didn't have time to, I mean, if I'd been debating John, I would have said, did you know James Baker was the guy that convinced Kevin Kleinsmith to, to, you know, um, alter a document to allow the issues of a FISA warrant so they could spot spy on Carter Page? Russia collusion. John, did you know that Baker basically convinced Kleinsmith to sell this steel dossier as credible information, not opposition research, to a FISA court judge? You know that, John? Of course he knows that. He absolutely knows that. John, did you know that James Baker, the same guy that convinced Kleinsmith to sell to a FISA court judge the dossier as being credible and not opposition research, John, did you know that same guy went to Twitter and tried to convince them successfully convinced them that this Hunter Biden laptop story is coming our way and it could affect the outcome of the election and you guys want what we want and that is for Biden to win. So I'm not putting my thumb on the scale, but you can. You certainly can. Would you change your algorithms? Would you shadow ban? Would you do whatever you guys do over here to make sure that story is suppressed? I don't know that James Baker went to Uh, Facebook, but we know somebody did because the guy that owns it and runs it says they did on Joe Rogan's podcast. Now, I don't know if, um, if Zuckerberg was under uh, the influence of an hallucinogenic drug. I don't have any idea why he said that publicly because he's a smart guy, but, but he is a faux pas without question. He made a mistake by saying, uh, and I'll tell you some of these podcasters have an, have an ability to make you comfortable. You feel like you're sitting at a bar. Joe and I are talking. I can say anything to Joe. Well, Joe's got millions and millions of viewers. And and what you say is going to be in the mainstream before you catch your breath. Now, I could have been totally disrespectful of John and gone that far down the road. And I could have said, John, do you know what I believe? I believe eventually we're going to have a House Judiciary Committee chaired by Jim Jordan. And we're going to ask James Baker what he did under oath, fear of perjury. And he's going to answer these questions. And you know what I think, John? I think we're going to find out that Joe Biden got paid peddling influence in the family name. John, that's what I think. Now, now once again, I'm an opinion monster. You're a journalist. But, but I just, I couldn't let that lie. I couldn't let him, a good and decent man who has been unbelievably gracious and kind to us for allowing us um, I, a look inside the beltway. I mean, I'm not there. I hear about it. I read about it. I speculate on what I think it's like, but I don't have any idea what it's like in there. He does. He's there every day. I mean, I bet he doesn't, I bet he lives a couple of miles from where he works. You know how some of those um, cities are closely sure. compacted. I mean, he's in the white house every single day. If I'm not mistaken, he has an office in some of the press corps area of the, uh, the white house. So he's up close and personal to the levers of power, the levers of government. He has flown, um, as a dignitary or traveling with dignitaries with president Trump and president Biden on foreign policy trips. So John is in the know. And for a guy in the know to say he doesn't know anything about this was just unfair. And I had to challenge him on that, not for me, but for you. You don't have a microphone. You don't have a show. And that was somewhat insulting. I mean, it was insulting to me. And if insulting to me, I got to believe it was probably somewhat 
insulting to you. And Jim, to answer your question, we can't pull that segment off of today's show because we're still recording today's show. It will be available uh, after the show when it gets uploaded to our website at live953.com and our podcast links. And if you subscribe to the podcast, it'll be part of that, uh, which is the daily show archive that is distributed later in the day. So it'll be on there. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Breaking news. You ready? Not breaking news, but it is breaking news. Mm -hmm. It broke about 15 minutes ago. Brittany Griner is being uh, released from a Russian prison um, in exchange for an arms dealer. Details uh, will be, I guess, to come. uh, Some sort of negotiated prisoner release deal. The U.S. officials are saying she is now in U.S. custody. The arms dealer, no idea who it is, what he's done, why he's in prison, but there's been a swap for he slash she, Brittany Griner. Um the basketball superstar, the NBA player playing in the WNBA who's married to a chick. Um, it's just weird that uh, we're there, man. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But what are where is – I mean, I understand the gray. I understand black and white and gray. I get all that. I mean, I do. But, but, but damn, are we not going to have any black and white? And I'm not talking about race relations. I'm talking about truth and reality. I mean, th- this is what it is. That ain't what it ain't. Every, I mean, there's, there's nothing that is what it is and nothing that ain't what it ain't anymore. I mean, everything can be what it chooses to be. And, and when you let that much gray exist in the policymaking world, everything's fair game. And it's just bizarre to me, some of these things. I'll give you a story. So I'm watching, might have been CNN late yesterday. Uh, well, it gets so dark early. I, mean, I don't know if it's evening or afternoon. I think it's <laughs> afternoon, but it's, I mean, it looks like evening, but it's only six o'clock. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's really late afternoon. True. But they were talking about Walmart. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Walmart is threatening to close uh, a lot of their stores in crime-ridden areas. But that's going to be bad for people that work at Walmart, people that shop at Walmart. But Walmart says, look, man, we've got a lot of money. I mean, we've got more money than anybody except Saudi Arabian drug princes and, and kings and all. But, but we don't have – we're not stupid. I mean, we're not, we're not going to let people just come into the store and loot wildly and law enforcement do nothing about it. So where we have these lax laws – where we have these non-enforcement legislation, I mean, we're going to move. We're going to just close our building down and, and let it be. We'll rent it to whomever. I mean, if you want to put a meth rehab center there, then more power to you. But we're not going to watch our stores get looted like, like, like law enforcement is allowing to happen in some of these places. And I saw somebody on CNN says, well, it's un-American for Walmart to do that because they have billions and billions and billions. So because you have billions and billions and billions, you don't have the right to protect your property in the eyes of some Americans. The absurdity of that. And the CNN host basically um, listens to that opinion as if it were mainstream. And if, and if somebody is hosting a show doing their job, trying to create some level of seriousness, they got to say, whoa, 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 what did you just say? That because Walmart has billions of dollars, we should turn a blind eye to criminality and criminal behavior? I mean, that, that, the absurdity of that, but that's what is trying to be normalized. That's what's trying to be mainstreamed in America today. And, and once again, this is a weird way to say it. And you folks have listened to me long enough to know that I have kind of a, um, a weird and unique way of saying things. When is ain't what it is and ain't what it ain't and is can be anything it wants to be and ain't doesn't have to be anything it can't be, then, then anything can be anything. And a dude can be a, a girl, and a girl can be a dude, and they can be a girl one day and a dude the next day, and a girl on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a, and a dude on Tuesday and Thursday. And uh, it's just absurd that we're allowing these sorts of debates and conversations to be normalized. Transgenderism, gender fluidity, 
um, gender neutrality. I mean, we're normalized some of these words. And what's going to happen, guys, trust me, there's going to be a generation to follow that will find this to be acceptable and reasonable. I mean, at some point in time, the, the debate about a woman on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and a man on Tuesday and Thursday, there will be a generation of Americans that say, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no problem with that. Because once again, nothing is what it is and ain't what it ain't, and it can be what it chooses to be. And, and I'm telling you guys, that's not the slippery slope. That's the slippery sliding board. I mean, that, that's, we're, we're, we're sliding down the side of Mount Everest and the North Face at about 9,000 million miles an hour um, and just hoping that there is no societal consequence to any of this. It's absurd. It's dangerous for society to not have some civil construct that we can anchor ourselves in. And it appears to me every civil normalcy is under assault. But by leftists, I mean, I don't know many right-wingers that are trying to do this. I mean, you can argue, did they leave their guns in Virginia or not? You know, did, did they did they attempt to overthrow a, um, a government or not? Okay, I mean, you've got an opinion, I've got an opinion. But wow. I mean, we've got half the country comfortable with allowing a minor child to enter into a medical contract to have their sex changed. Forget debt and deficits for a second. Forget audits of the Pentagon for a second. Forget what an electric vehicle um, costs to fuel or not. I mean, yeah, those matter. Those are big issues, and they need to be debated. But, but we as a nation are going to allow that to be normalized and mainstreamed? That, that a kid can go to a doctor without parental permission and sign a contract and a doctor is going to perform a sex change operation of gender mutilation? I mean, it, I mean, we don't think there's a consequence to pay for that godlessness and evil. And I'm not getting preachy. I mean, I could, but I'm the last one that needs to get preachy. But, but I mean, wow. I mean, that, that's, it seems to me that that's where, where we're headed. And I think Brittany Griner is a reflection of that. Is, is she a dude? I don't know. Is it a she? I don't know. Is he married to a man or is, he, is she married to a woman? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. None of this matters. We're all equal in God's eyes. Take a break. Back in a minute. Whoa, is that um, Chuck Berry? So, Freehold, in the pantheon of all-time guitarist, where's Chuck Berry? Because of his innovation, his originality. Well, I mean, what do you mean by that, innovation, originality? Uh, well, he, um, uh, he, he was doing things at the time that nobody ever did. You know, he, uh, he stole, he stole yeah. all that from Michael J. Fox. <laughs> that's actually yeah that's funny. Uh, but yeah um all, like all those uh little uh those runs that he did um using uh you know the double strings uh down the line uh that's i mean that was him you know hendrix pretty much um elaborated on what he did so yeah you know innovative wise absolutely so yeah. as simple as his song sound there's a complexity to the riffs and the way and th there's an innovation to the way he plays the guitar. Well, yeah. I mean, if somebody was writing riffs like that now, you wouldn't think about it. But, but nobody was then. No, no. Gotcha. Yeah. It was new. Yeah. yeah. It was a thing. He, he was, was, a, he was a, So he was a trailblazer. Yeah, especially the double stop. And nobody was doing double stops before him. And it just So what is so a double fun. stop? Uh, it's when you take two fingers. It's usually on uh, two of the lower strings. And you kind of slide it up and down the fret. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah you knew yeah. that. Come on. 
God did. <laughs> now, you know the, what I'm doing? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a game here. I'm rewarding Freehold with airtime because he did yeoman's work during the break and has right. John, John Decker right. teed up and ready to roll. And I know how much he likes guitarist and guitar music. And I mean, if you notice a lot of the bumpers, I mean, they, they reflect a an affinity Freehold has for guitarist. And I don't know if Chuck Berry, I mean, to me, it sounds not hokey, but it sounds very simple. You know, Johnny be good, Johnny be good, Johnny be good, Johnny be good. But but he's he's known to have impacted a lot of modern yeah. day guitarists. And when he did it, it correct, was very by, innovative. by the innovative way of which he plays. And and I guess And your reference to Michael J. Fox, the movie Back to the Future and you know, that, well, I mean he ripped was, off Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I mean, because I think Superman can fly. Yep. Uh I believe that, you know, Rocky really beat Apollo Creed. I mean, I fall for all <laughs> that. So let's do this before we go to our phone. Um, you found it. We'll do this again tomorrow. But Jim asked. Let me mention this because you're getting okay. ready to talk about John Decker's call with us this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, just to give you a perspective, he just sent me a picture. He was standing about 20 feet from the president when the president just made his announcement about Brittany Griner's prison swap. I'll show it to mm-hmm. you right there. Okay. And Good deal. Uh, so, I mean, he's he's right there in the midst. So talk about somebody who's in the belly of the beast. And so that means a lot more to him than it does to me. Right. I mean, he'll send you pictures of where he is on Air Force One, and you'll send those pictures to me. And I said, that's a nice fern. You know, that, that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or is that a red car or a garnet car? You know, mm-hmm. let's garnet to me. I just somebody put a Gamecock on, on that thing. But, I mean, I get it. I mean, you get caught up in that reality. That's, that's his world. Sure, that's his world and his pomp and circumstance. It's a reverence to American governmental power. I mean, I, I certainly understand that. And, and And the one thing he's done is invested a lot of his life in making sure – He's accepted in that world. I understand that. I certainly understand that. But I couldn't let him get away with that. I couldn't let him get away with that because of who we are and what we believe and what we stand for. I didn't say I. I didn't say you. We collectively are by and large offended by the way the insiderism in Washington operates. And I think when Decker said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've not heard the story. It reflected of this insiderism that we find so revolting, so disgusting, so distasteful, so against our plot and what we want American government to genuinely represent. So, I mean, I've always tried to be respectful of um, of John because he's a good guy. I mean, he's a really genuinely good, good man. And I think if I called Decker tomorrow and said, John, I'm coming to Washington first of next year. I got a buddy just got elected to Congress. Anyway, you can help me with a White House tour. I think he would go above and beyond to try and accommodate me in any way he possibly could. But but once again, when he said about the James Baker story, I don't know what you're talking about. Before I knew it, I caught another gear and did something that I probably, I mean, I don't have any regrets, but I challenged him in a pretty forceful kind of way. Friel, you got it teed up? Enough of the guitar talk. Let's go to um, John <laughs> and, and Decker. He, and he stopped it. We talked about it a minute ago. He stopped the recording of the show during the break and was able to lift it off. So that's why we and this is the, so this thank is you, the, Mike. This is the great television senior national editor and White House correspondent. The FBI in uh, kind of suggesting to Twitter that there's a story out there that has the markings of Russia disinformation. We found out now how legitimate the story really is. What, what, what do you make of that story? 
I don't know much about it. Uh, you're, you're telling me something that is news to me uh, about uh, this individual who formerly served as a lawyer at the FBI. And then, according to what you're telling me, then went to work for Twitter. Um, you know, I mean, that's uh, certainly permissible uh, for someone to leave government service to work in the private sector. But I, I honestly don't know enough about that story to weigh in on it. I'm in- sorry. Interesting. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because the media is not talking about it. Nobody <laughs> but Fox News yeah. and the Wall Street Journal yeah. have well, touched on it. Well, well, I mean, James Baker was general counsel of the FBI. I mean, there, there's yeah. reasons to believe that Baker went to Twitter as a representative of the FBI yeah. and strongly suggested that they basically violate free speech and, and government agencies yeah. aren't allowed to do that. Elon Musk thought so much of it that he exited James Baker from the business. And we believe once um, Jim Jordan becomes chair of the House Judiciary Committee, yeah. there will be a full-fledged investigation. And the name well, James I Baker, would, I think the media will be yeah. forced at some point in time, despite their reluctance, I think the media sure. will be forced at some point in time, if there's journalistic integrity left, to report on the right. James Baker FBI story. Well, I, I, I certainly will. Um, you know, if there are hearings, uh, we will cover them. Absolutely. I think that uh, House Republicans know that. Uh, we have to cover that. So yeah. uh, I look forward to that. You know, just a reminder, Twitter uh, is not a news organization. So if you wanted to read information in the run-up to the 2020 election about Hunter Biden's laptop, all you had to do was flip on Fox News. I worked at Fox at the time. Uh, we were covering that story. Flip, uh, Go to New York post.com they were the ones that essentially broke the story so you could you could certainly find information on that story you just couldn't find it in terms of a link to those stories on twitter that is that is definitely true yeah thank you john appreciate your time thanks ken have a great day have a great day as well and this is why we need uh, a certain i don't know rev a certain aggressiveness about uh what but if you're somebody who has a worldview um that that is right of center you're, you're not going to get a fair shake. I mean, if you believe that there's there's reason to investigate. I mean, here's well, what you, I'll and say. And you pointed out that if there is any journalistic integrity left. I mean, I did that. That was a little insulting. Yeah. I mean, that, that was kind of a zinger. Um, but, but I felt I had to do that because John Decker knows that story. Somebody at Gray Television and in, in, in the, I guess, the high ranks of supervision have told their employees, let's see if we can wait this out. Now, once again, Jim Jordan is going to be chair of the House Judiciary Committee. I believe the two things Jordan will make as his priority are the origin of COVID and Fauci. He doesn't care much for Fauci, so it will be a bit personal with him. And I think the Jim, the James Baker FBI corruption story that the media has refused to cover is going to get um, some pretty serious coverage once the Republicans have control of the House and Jim Jordan becomes becomes chairman. Now, now, once again, great television may choose to not cover those hearings. They may think that's boring. You know how Jim Jordan is. I mean, he's one of those wrestlers gone bad. I mean, that, that, that's the way they'll try yeah. to portray him as. And, and guys, this is dangerous. I mean, th- this is really and truly dangerous. When, when, a, when a media outlet or the media in general becomes so monolithic. I mean, if you heard what he said, you could have gone to the New York Post or Fox News. I mean, that's kind of an indictment of his own profession. There's a new story out there that the Wall, excuse me, the uh, the New York Post and the uh, the Fox News crowd. I mean, that's what they're referred to as in the you know the Fox News crowd. So Fox News and the New York Post choose to cover this story. Nobody else does, and John's okay with that. I mean, John basically implied that if you want to see that story, you can find that story. Yeah, you got to go to Fox News and the New York Post, but that story's out there somewhere. We're talking about the son of a president potentially in business dealings where the president, the current president, is being financially rewarded 
proponing influence, for peddling influence. How is that not a story that great television is interested in? I mean, if there's a if there's a hint of impropriety in that story, how is every news agency in America that professes to be journalistic in nature not waking up every day, turning over every rock, trying to find out exactly what happened with James Baker, with the Biden campaign and then administration, with Twitter, with Facebook, with Hunter Biden, with Joe Biden, with Jim Biden, with a shared office, with Tony Bobolinsky. Why? I mean, isn't that the nature of journalism? Investigative journalism at its finest? I mean, that's what they're to do. Go investigate and see if this James Baker character can be trusted or not. No, I don't know anything about it. I mean, I'm standing 20 feet from the president, but I don't know anything about the story you're talking about. But then he said, well, let me know he didn't say it. I'm going to be fair to John. Um, He said, I know about the Hunter Biden laptop story. I don't know about this James Baker Twitter story and whether or not it leads to peddling U.S. government influence to the highest bidder uh, by his son being on a board at Burisma and other financial arrangements and businesses and sectors that he had absolutely no experience um, for. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, you guys talk about back to the future. Um, you in what was it? Trump's independent run, 1912 presidential election, Ken. I'm going to quiz you on this one. Um, the Bull Moose Party. Teddy Roosevelt ran against William Howard Taft. You remember that one, or you ever studied that? I've one? studied a little bit of that. I don't obviously don't remember it, but yeah, I've studied some of that. Okay, and guess what? Woodrow Wilson won. Mm-hmm. So be careful about that. I mean, you had Perot and Bush, and then Bill Clinton won. But then I'm going to talk about Man Herschel. You talked earlier about door knocks. How about door knocks for Warnock? Uh, and when I watched that, I think the, the coverage, actually, I didn't watch it. I had to uh, follow it on the Internet. But Herschel was down after 20% of the votes were counted. Herschel was down by about 100,000. So I said, maybe that's the early votes. Somewhere along the line with about 57%, he was up by 25,000. And then Herschel was up after 80% by 10,000. And I think you said something yesterday. That's when the DeKalb County, Fulton County came in and Man, uh, Warnock won the Cab County by 208,000 votes. He won Fulton by 204,000. That's roughly, what's that, 412,000. Don't that remind you of Philadelphia? Philadelphia is going to win you a Democrat by about 400,000 votes. And I'll give Herschel credit. Um, I think that Kelly Loeffler, he, she lost by 93,000. Herschel lost by 97,000. My question, who are you going to run, though? Would you run Doug Collins or Marjorie Taylor Greene or David Perdue? I mean, who else would you run? Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Yeah, who would be better than Walker? I don't know. I mean, I'll give you a recount. Here's a blow-by-blow. You ready? So Tuesday at 6.38 p.m., I text Robert. Herschel has very little chance, question mark. Only a very high turnout can save him. It might have happened, but not enough information available to us to tell whether it did. I mean, that's he and I conversing or texting at uh, 6, uh, what did I say, 6.38. So I text again at 8.25. Any sense of what the data shows yet? And Robert texts back, DeKalb County holding their votes back. <laughs> this is pretty, um. anyway, I'll say it. DeKalb County holding their votes back, so grab your ankles. <laughs> 
That's, well, I mean, Robert's been there. I mean, yeah. he's done that. He lives in Georgia. He knows the way the machines work. Uh, and he was right. DeKalb County holding their votes back, so grab your ankles. Um, and then he sends another. Watch DeKalb County, 75-25, Dim County, only 5% in. This lead is artificial. No idea why DeKalb is slow, so slow they normally aren't. And then he sends me a screenshot, and it's got a um, kind of a, his marker on it of DeKalb County. And in contrast with all the other counties, there was 75% reporting, 81% reporting, 72% reporting, 67% reporting, 94% reporting, 5% reporting. So what happened to DeKalb County? I don't know. Uh, I text Robert back after he sent me the screenshot. So he's going to lose, question mark. I don't feel good about it. Um, I just don't feel, I don't feel confident that DeKalb is going to report legitimately. I mean, that's what he's saying. Um, I won't feel better till I can see what DeKalb um, does. So, I mean, that's the guy, once again, inside the belly of the beast that, that looks at the data in a very different way. Now, I did watch um, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox kind of going back and forth, that wall they do about where the votes were outstanding. And it was very interesting to me. It's kind of, um, I mean, apparently Democrat votes are harder to count. They just take a lot longer. I mean, I don't know why. Somebody can explain that to me. I mean, I thought a vote was a vote was a vote. But, but historically, the Republican heavy precincts report 90%. The Democrat heavy precincts um, report, you know, 25%, 30%, 24%. Somebody explain to me why it's harder to count a ballot in a Democrat precinct than it is in a Republican precinct. I mean, that, I'm, once again, I'm, I'm, I'm an accusatory. I don't have any idea what happens. I mean, they, there, there may be something about blue votes. I mean, it may just talk, take longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have to chase them around in the air and grab them out of the sky to make sure you can count. Yeah, something uh, like the that. programs may run slower. I don't have any idea. The technology <laughs> may be better in some of these Republican precincts than in Democrats. But but historically, Republican precincts report at a lot higher rate, a lot more proficiently than they do in some of these um some of these Democrat precincts. But that was kind of the back and forth that Robert and I had. And when I went to bed at about nine thirty, I mean Robert had convinced me that this is kind of a false lead. It's not going to hold up. DeKalb County, I mean, you know, David said he won by how many, 250,000 votes or whatever the number was. Walker did better than most people predicted he would. I mean, some of the um, some of the crystal balls had a 53-47. Um, the closest I saw it was about a five-point, four-and-a-half-point, uh, but it was less than two points. You know, it was nearly, well, now, my 40, what is it, 51.6, 40, 48 points for something like that. I mean, it was, but it was a res- less than a hundred thousand votes difference. And he lost by 36 in the, uh, in the general. So, um, you know, and he didn't have any third party candidates. It was a, uh, probably more and large, more likely a straight party vote. But when I saw that number on Saturday and Monday, the early voting, remember they, they settled the lawsuit and allowed them to vote in, uh, on Saturday. And then I saw the number, on Monday, I think it was 380,000, broke the all-time record of early voting in Georgia. And I saw bus after bus after bus at some of these precincts and polling stations. I just kind of saw the writing on the wall. And Walker made some mistakes. I mean, he didn't clean up some things as well as I think he should have. And he was not a great candidate. I mean, I'm not saying he was a bad candidate. I don't buy into that. I mean, I think, you know, a candidate is what a candidate is. Good candidate, bad candidate. Uh, you know, I don't know. But Walker had a lot of um, baggage. But he had a lot of um, name ID and notoriety and loyalty and legacy. I mean, there were a lot of Georgia Bulldog fans who wanted to vote for their favorite son. But there were some that didn't. 
I think it's interesting that despite Walker being the greatest Georgia Bulldog ever, I don't know if you saw this or not, on college game day, they were talking about Georgia and the great players in Georgia. And Chris Fowler said, when I think of Georgia and David Pollock is on stage with him, he said, I think of you and Herschel. And David Pollock said, when Georgia fans think of it, they think of Herschel and everybody else. <laughs> you know, so, so in other That's words, um, Athens, I didn't say that. I mean, I'm very humbled and flattered he would say that. But I want you to quickly understand, I didn't compare myself to Herschel. That was Chris Fowler, <laughs> and he cleaned that up real quick and said, Georgia Bulldog Nation believes it's Herschel and everybody else. But he lost Athens. I mean, he lost the, 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 the city and county of which he cemented such a historic um, legend, and it's about college kids. Yeah. I mean, it's young about you know the, the young voters voting not in favor of a football hero, but rather you know a um, an abortion loving. You know, I could go on and on and on about Warnock because I, I I get tired of um the media trying to argue that the Democrats have these flawed candidates. John Fetterman. I mean, I'll just leave it there. I mean, if 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 any Democrat tries to convince me that the reason Republicans lost is this quality of candidate. I just go to the, um, whatever the lady's name was in Arizona that nobody knows because she never debated, never did anything. Not Arizona, Nevada. No, I'm talking, yeah, Nevada, Nevada. Um, no, it's Arizona in the governor's race. Katie Hobbs yep. is who I'm thinking about. I mean, you're talking about, I don't know how wide, but it was less than an inch deep. I mean, I'll assure you with that. Speaking of Fetterman, so your comment on Henry Winkler's tweet made me chuckle because Henry Winkler was talking about Herschel, uh, and he, he was not for Herschel, he was for Warnock, and he made the point, how could you elect somebody who can't put a sentence together? And you made a comment back to, back to him and said, hey, where, where were you in Pennsylvania? Come on, Fonz. Yeah. <laughs> Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> Take a break. Vinnie Barbarino and Arthur Fonzarelli are entering the political discourse. Hey. Yeah. Hey. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I want to end the show. We got about what twenty minutes, thirty minutes, thirty minutes, probably twenty five minutes of airtime. The division is happening. The separation, this divorce that we've talked um, theoretically and hypothetically about, it's happening right before our very eyes. Uh, you're watching Walmart. Use that as an example. So Walmart basically says if these liberal cities are not going to enforce laws against stealing and theft and shoplifting and i mean if there's some minimum i mean in other words if you don't spend if you don't shoplift more than a thousand dollars then you know who's looking whose problem is that so so what walmart and some of these businesses are doing they're not the only one i thought redwood target is thinking about closing 23 of their stores they're not closing their stores down in republican governed states and cities they're just not i mean the majority of this is happening in real liberal cities who are not enforcing laws against shoplifting or theft, or, or anything like that. So we're beginning to see people um, make decisions based on how they're being governed. Um, San Francisco, I don't know if you saw this or not, um, you got you got meth addicts, you've got all kind of drugs on the street, you got tent cities on every corner, but Elon Musk tried to turn some of his, um, some of his space into bedrooms so people could sleep there, not go home, and get, you know, harder workers. And I mean, he's, he's making it optional. I mean, if you're a hard worker, won't want to move up in the company and, and don't want to go home every night, you can stay here. Mm-hmm. And the city um, zoning department is now saying must they're in violation of certain codes and ethics. I mean, I'll make a prediction that Twitter will relocate to Texas or Florida probably in the next 36 months. I mean, somewhere thereabout. Right. So we're seeing this natural divorce happening right before our very eyes. 
Walmart is saying to these liberal cities, if you're not going to enforce the law and you're going to allow people to shoplift without, you know, punishment or, or, or prosecution, then we'll just leave. I mean, we'll close down and go and go somewhere else. Target is beginning to do that. Um, we've seen businesses move from California to Texas. We've seen uh, individuals move from New York to Pauly's Island. <laughs> you know, there can't be anybody left in New York. They're moving to Florida and the Carolinas down um, down south. So, so we're beginning to see this natural realignment. Um, and I think Walmart is interesting because they're a big boy, right? I mean, they're the biggest retailer on the planet. And I Amazon them kind of back and forth. But, but once Walmart says, you know, we're closing 30 stores down in Democrat cities, I mean, that is a part of the progression. That is people voting with their feet and pocketbooks. Um, I'm not going to run a business if the people I trust to keep my business and my employees safe are just not interested in doing it. Instead of fighting that battle, I'll just leave. I'll just shut down and go home. And I think when Walmart closes one and then two and then three and then four and then five and then six, there'll be this revelation. And I've said it before, guys, if we could build a chain link fence and divide America equally, and those of us who believe in some of the principles and values that are espoused in our Constitution, and those who didn't, those who felt that um, it was in violation of human rights, and you know everybody needs to finish the race at about the same time, and freedoms and liberties are not to be the places of priority, there's a chain link fence running somewhere in Nebraska, and one half the country is on one side, and the other half the country is on the other side, and the side on the right, I mean, they abide by the Constitution. They believe in liberties and freedoms and limited government, and the other side doesn't. Who jumps the fence first? I mean, that's always been the question I ask my liberal friends. Run your nation as New York runs its country. I mean, it runs its state. Run your nation as California does. We'll run ours as some of the more conservative states do. Florida, South Carolina. Um, try to think Ohio is becoming a little more conservatively governed. Um, and let's build that fence, and let's see who jumps the fence first. Let's go to the phone. Here's Cocky Mike. Hello, Mike. Hey, guys. What's going on? And I did hey, get I your text, one. and as I said, I if there, if <laughs> there's not an L in DeKalb, then take it. It's DeKalb. <laughs> it's not DeKalb, but take the damn L out. <laughs> Let me tell you the rest of that story. For people who are wondering, I sent, I sent Ken a text during, you know, after that last segment. I said, hey, by the way, it's pronounced DeKalb, not DeKalb. No, you know, just no big deal. Well, come to find out after you replied to me, I, I thought of something else. That I lived in, in DeKalb County from 82 to 87. My wife is from Doraville. Uh, Dave, she went to, you know, uh, Atlanta River section of Doraville, a touch country in the city. She actually went to school with one of the founder of that band. Anyway. Cool. But anyway, I, I'm dating her long distance, and we're driving around downtown Atlanta, and and I look up, and I said, ah, Ponce de Leon Avenue. And she looked at me, and she said, what? I said, what, what? She said, how did you say that name? I said, Ponce de Leon. He was a Spanish explorer. And she looked at me, and she says, no. I said, well, how is it pronounced? In Georgia. She said, it's Ponce de Leon. <laughs> I'm like, boy, if that ain't Georgia, I don't know what it is. It's Ponce de Leon. He wasn't a Spanish explorer. Well, he was whatever he wanted to be. But anyway, uh, later, guys. That was just a little humor. Thank you, Mike. See, I, I, thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. I'd call it Paz Dion because there is no <laughs> L. You don't pronounce L's in Georgia, right? Apparently. I mean, why does DeKalb need an L? I mean, if, it, if it's not DeKalb, but rather DeKalb, why does it need an L? 
I mean, I'm a little bit like the barbershop scene. It's mama named him Clay. I'm calling him Clay. Remember that? A man has a right to change his name if he chooses to change his name. Uh, well, his mama named him Clay. I'm calling him um, Clay. Some things just don't make any sense. Why is there an L? I mean, I'm sure there's some um, grammar expert out there somewhere that can explain, you know, this letter before that letter and this syllable or that syllable. Um, Clemson doesn't have a P in it, but it does with me. I mean, I know how it's spelled. I spell it right, but I pronounce it with, with a P in it. Um, I remember when I first moved to South Carolina and I was on the radio, probably my first radio job, and I said something and gave a shout out to the people in McBee. And that's the last time I did that. That would be McBee. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can hear you saying that now, McBee. Um, 843-661-0937, our number. So, so the, the divorce is happening right before our very eyes. I mean, it's federalism, I've always felt, Rev, was the relief valve. I mean, when people have enough of the way a, a state governs itself, they have an opportunity. I mean, it's a big move. I mean, it's, of course, it's life-changing and altering to pick up and leave. But I think we're getting there. I mean, I really believe that you're going to see a mass exodus of businesses and people because Walmart is probably as woke as anybody. I mean, Walmart has been real careful to not get crossed up with the government. I mean, they, they don't buck, they don't yell, they don't scream. They like policy. They like legislation. They like tax code to work a certain way. They believe that they have a seat in that room. The last thing they want to do is get kicked out of that room and not have a seat at that room. But they, they're, they're not going to continually. I mean, their, their board has a fiduciary responsibility. They're not going to continue to allow their stores to operate in cities that don't enforce laws when people break in and steal stuff from a Walmart. I mean, that's just counterintuitive. That makes no sense. I mean, I'm going to open my store, and I'm going to, I'm going to hope and pray that nobody robs my store today, but if I'm unfortunate and they do, I don't have any recourse because the government has decided that if you don't steal up to 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever that arbitrary number is, they're not going to prosecute. And, and what does a thief know? What does a criminal know? They know not to steal more than 2,000. You said it happened here locally. I heard you a, heard first, a story. A first Tell person that story. Account. I had a first-person account from somebody I know and trust who said they witnessed one of those scenarios at a local establishment, a, a big-box-type establishment, but they were in the checkout lane and watched somebody just take a, a cart of things right outside and put it in their car and take off. They were you know, Some employees were around them at that point, but they tried to take off and jumped over the curb to get out of the parking lot and everything, said it was... I mean, a really disturbing thing to see. But it would have been so unusual in in twenty. I mean, ten or twenty years ago, that would have been so. I mean, what what are we seeing here? But now you're like, in, I mean, it, there's got to be a conversation. Somebody gets in the car. Somebody saw that and got to the car and said to their wife or husband or kid or spouse or friend or or whomever their their acquaintance that they, they looked at him and said, "Hey, I saw. I, I think this happens everywhere. That's pretty wild, man. That it happened here. Yeah, but I think it's happening all over the country." Now, now, once again, CNN's not going to show this. MSNBC is not going to show this. John Decker knows nothing about this, but, but it's <laughs> happening rampantly around the country. And if you're a criminal and you don't want to work and you want nice things and you know they don't prosecute criminals who want nice things but won't work, why wouldn't you take them up on their offer? Why wouldn't you take a buggy and go into a Walmart and fill it up with whatever you choose to fill it up with and shove it out of the door? I mean, you take a Walmart employee, make an X number. I don't know if you saw this or not. The Home Depot employee, the 83-year-old oh, man that tried to stop somebody from stealing a card of look like power tools to me yep. from a Home Depot, he just shoves him on the ground. Well, about a week later, the man's dead. I mean, that's some sort of brain bleeding. 
I mean, there's a guy with a hoodie pushing a cart full of power equipment out of the wall, out of the uh, Home Depot, and, and the old man. I mean, I'd say that you know, with all due respect, the old man about well, he's 83 years old. I mean, he steps out and tries to prohibit him from leaving the uh, the premises, and he just kind of takes his forearm, and I mean, he's an older gentleman, and he just kind of knocks him down, hits his head. A week later, he's dead. And, you know, what's going to be done about that? I don't have any idea. I just think you're going to see a lot of businesses that profess to be woke have to make decisions about how woke they really are. I mean, I'm, I'm woke. I want to do the right thing. I don't want to get kicked out of that room. When, when, the, when the Republicans and Democrats start drafting, you know, legislation or tax policy, I, want, I don't want to be excluded from that. But I can't sit there and, and, and some of these blue states and blue counties and blue, blue cities, I can't sit there and watch my you know, my, um, my business be ransacked and plundered and pillared uh, for, for everything in the store. And, it, and it's becoming, like Rev said, you see it now and you're like, I saw things like that on the news. I've seen, I've heard that there are things like that happening in neighboring states and neighboring cities and, and neighboring counties. And you're hearing that because there are. There are these things happening. I may try over the weekend to do kind of a, um, a good bit of research on my part to find out who has the most lenient shoplifting laws in America and when they were changed. Remember the summer of 2020? I mean, it's remembered, you know, about um, this insurrection or the, the, the accused insurrection, the proposed insurrection, but, but nobody talked about all the riots. And, and the guy right. on CNN saying this is a largely peaceful riot yeah. and a building's on fire in the mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine how comfortable you got to be in the monolith or the cathedral to believe you can stand in front of a burning building while a street is on fire and say that the protest is largely peaceful. I mean, there's this kind of an, uh, almost an arrogance there. Do not believe your eyes. Yeah. This building behind me on fire is the sole exception or the single exception to an otherwise very peaceful um, and tranquil riot. Uh, windows bashed in, um, computers and phones and the likes you know, off of um, Apple stores. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a montage about 20 minutes long on YouTube. I mean, it's just it's become kind of normal. I mean, it's, it's become very accepted in some of these blue states, blue cities, and blue counties. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Let me give you a real quick business lesson. Got about three minutes here, maybe four minutes. So the business lesson I want to give real quick applies to, like, take Walmart and Target as an example. So Target says that they are working with law enforcement in cities around America to find out how viable their model is. I'm going to imagine that. Target is working. They've got a security staff. Their security personnel with Target are, are, are negotiating with law enforcement to find out whether their business model is viable or not hmm. in that particular city. I guess what they're saying is um, law enforcement, if somebody breaks into our store, somebody steals product from Target, will you prosecute? Are they committing a crime? I mean, we live in sanctuary cities. You know, they welcome illegal aliens. They, they're not breaking the law if they live in one of these. I mean, there's a big debate about, you know, federal legislation and all this. But anyway, so, so here's the business lesson I want to give you real quick. So if I buy a computer for $1,000 and I sell it for 1000 I didn't lose anything. Now I lost the, the expense of my business. Somebody cost me money to get it here, and I got staff, and I got insurance, I got a lease, I got a lot of other, uh, you know, what we call overhead in the business world. But if somebody steals that $100 or $1,000 computer, I mean, I'm down 1000 bucks. If my margins are 10%, I got to sell $10,000 worth of computers to make up the one stolen computer. Are you computing 
Are you staying with me here for real? Mm-hmm. I mean, you see what I'm oh, saying? Absolutely. I mean, somebody, I mean, so Target said that they expect shrinkage to be $600 million this year. Huh. I mean, it said about 410 or 15 million. They're expecting rampant shrinkage during the holiday season. They're, they're expecting the majority of this to be in blue states, blue cities, blue municipalities where they don't enforce. In other words, you've got a threshold. You can steal two pair of Ray-Ban shades, but you better not spill, steal three or four, or you might get crossed that, that threshold. So the point I'm trying to make is the negative impact of their bottom line is not that they're making nothing. I mean, in other words, if, if I bought a truck, I mean, I'm thinking about my truck body days. If I bought a truck in a body and paid $10,000 and I couldn't sell it, but Rev came along and said, I'll give you what you got in it. I'll give you 10000 I mean, I lost the price of money and I lost the potential proceeds or profit. And I lost the fact that I've run that business for that week. I've had a lot bill and a phone. You know what I'm saying? The, the, the overhead that we're talking about. But if Rev steals that truck, I mean, I'm out of $10,000. How much more product do I have to sell to replace that $10,000 that just walked out of the door? Well, when you think Walmart has billions and billions and Target has billions and billions, do the math and think about how much product they've got to sell to replace that $600 million that walked out of the door. I mean, let's say Walmart and Target operate on a 10% margin. I don't know what their margins are. Probably better on some lines than others. Uh, some of the um, generic brands, the Walmart brand, I would imagine what we call private label. I mean, they probably have better margins than some of the name brands. Um, but, but I mean, imagine if you're Walmart and your annual revenues are X number of billions of dollars uh, a year, but 600 million walk out of the door in a single year. I mean, imagine how much product you've got to sell to generate $600 million in profit and replace the money that just simply walked out of the door like a fart in the wind. I mean, it's gone. Uh, nothing you can do about it. That's the, that's the problem here. Because I had somebody text me a second ago. I mean, they're not defending shoplifting. And they're not defending law enforcement that won't enforce the law. But they said, would Walmart really miss a billion dollars? I mean, their shareholders would. I mean, the financial report would, because once again, it's not just missing a billion dollars. It's a billion dollars going out of the door with, with, with no money coming in. And, and you got to think about, you, you pay $900 for that computer. You try to sell it for $1,000. There's your margin. You got to build in your overhead. So you didn't make a hundred bucks uh, in, in, a, in a $900 computer that you sold for a thousand. You probably made a 5% margin because you got 5% in overhead. When something walks out of that door, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, that's done. It's paid for. I mean, you paid for it, so that money's gone, and you get nothing in return. So, yes, a billion or two or three billion dollars in Walmart's world is a lot because it equates to, you know, fifty billion in sales. So, if I mean, if Target's losing six hundred million, that's their predicted annual loss this year because of of shrinkage. I mean, Walmart's three times as big as Target. You got to believe that they're not immune to what Target has had to deal with. I mean, the, the, the shareholders need to be concerned about this. I mean, if, if Walmart operates in cities that won't enforce the law, that won't lock criminals up, it's going to see a precipitous decline in the value of that stock. And that's going to, you know, if you got a file 401k and one of the uh, blue chips you invest in as a uh, mutual fund is as Walmart or Target, I mean, these would be the staples of our economy. And all of a sudden they're losing $600 million or a billion dollars in theft. But that takes that, that that makes an impact on what your investment and your performance is in your portfolio of stock. You may not be the CEO of Walmart or the CEO of Target, 
but you're certainly hopeful they can be as profitable as they can. So I get it. And I think it would be hilarious if Walmart closed a hundred stores down in some of these crime ridden areas where law enforcement just refuses to enforce the law. I've heard of theft traveling. You know, we're talking about medical tourism. Mm-hmm. I've heard of theft tourism. This, this place will lock you up if you shoplift, but this county over here will not. Well, let's load up and go steal a bunch of flat screens. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.